Okay. Hello, and welcome to Where Am I to Go podcast. Today we happen to be in Phoenix, Arizona with Mark, and we are at the Hall of Flame Museum, which is a firefighting museum. And Mark's going to take us through, describe some of the things that they have, tell us about the history of firefighting. And I am excited to be here, Mark. I've been to this museum a couple of times, and this place is just unbelievable with the antique fire... uh, Fire engines? Apparatus, and engines, ap- whatever you want to call it. we got a little bit of everything here, Lauren. You do. And we're very glad to have you here. Uh, and we're going to, uh, you know, show you around. And as much as possible, we'll uh, paint word pictures of the beautiful stuff that we have here at the Hall of Flame. And that's what we're going to do. But before we get started with the word pictures, mm-hmm. uh, when I called to set up this appointment... I was told that you guys had a YouTube channel that you had started with the pandemic and, and all of that kind of stuff. We do. And I did go hit that uh, YouTube channel. What was it called? Is it called the Hall of Flame? It's called the Hall of Flame Museum YouTube channel. And uh, you can find, a, right now I think we're up to about 70 videos. We've kind of been trying to up our game on the social media and online presence here uh, at the museum, and uh, we've, to be honest with you, Lauren, we're, we're kind of old school here. We're, we're coming to all of this uh, online stuff a little later than a lot of museums are, but we're trying to make up for lost time. We have our little Facebook page and our Twitter page and our Instagram page, and we're working on some of the other social media possibilities that there are. But the biggest project that we really, we were closed for a couple of months, uh, because of the pandemic, and we during that time we were still here, we just weren't open to the public, and we decided, well, if people can't come into the museum, let's bring the museum to them. And we started to do, one of the things that we do here, as you may or may not know, is we do a lot of youth programs, and uh, we do programs for little kids. And that's and kind of your forte. You are the, you're it, the director of education? I am. I'm the curator of education, and the, one of the biggest parts of my job or at least it was until uh, the pandemic came along, was doing field trips and groups like that with usually little kids, small kids. Preschool, uh, kindergarten, first and second grade has tended to be our wheelhouse here. And we uh, try to teach a bit of fire uh, safety education, and we try to do it in a fun way. And It's a little tough with the very little kids, but we try to teach a little bit of very basic fire history, firefighting history, too, just about how it developed and stuff like that in a way that the kids can understand. But one of the ways that we've done this all these years is with story times. We do stories uh, for kids that teach in a fun, entertaining, non-threatening, not-too-scary sort of way. I mean, we always say people should be scared of fire. Kids should be scared of fire. For that matter, adults should be scared of fire. Even firefighters, if they're smart, are scared of fire. Uh, But so we do these story times, and a big part of my job, and probably my favorite part of my job, uh, but that has, for the most part, dried up since this started, and it looks like it's going to be quite a while before it starts again. So what we decided to do was put some of the stories online, and we did. 
me reading these stories. Also, uh, my associate Claudia here, uh, who uh, who can do stories both uh, in English and Spanish. Oh wow! Uh, did some English and Spanish stories. And uh, but in addition to that, we thought, well, why not put some of the tour material on for adults or for people of any age? And so we started to kind of kind of like we're going to do today, just talk about and describe and give some context to some of the exhibits here. And it's really something that we've kind of taken to, and, and we've got a lot of videos going. We hope to make a lot more, uh, and uh, you can check them out uh, online on the Hall of Flame uh, Museum YouTube channel. Now, I didn't watch 70 of them, but I probably watched well, five or six. It? I don't know. you got to get on the case. I, I don't know. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, they were they were good. The thing that's nice about them is, is the ones that I watched were five to ten minutes long, so yeah. they're not super long, and so they're not hard to keep the interest of maybe a kid or, oh, yeah. or even myself. We're, we're you, hoping so, yeah. We, and, even to your attention span, we're, right, we're trying to right. appeal to. And so it was It was really nice being able to see those. And, and like I said, I've been through this museum before, and I'm sure that on your 70-plus uh, videos that you've got, you highlight different uh, pieces and some of that. All kinds of stuff. And I'm relieved to hear that you don't think they're too long because sometimes I think they're too long. Sometimes I think I run my mouth way too long on those videos. Uh, but I'm glad if you if you were able to stick with them. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. So anyway, let's get started here. We, we, we walk into the lobby, which is a gift shop, right. and then and then we come on the into shop. the into the main area here, or at least I would consider this the main area. What do you call it? Gallery well, one. This or? is gallery one. Exactly correct. Now we have four big galleries, and then we have some small side galleries that are all all full of stuff that's worth checking out. My favorite gallery happens to be this one. Gallery Mine one. too. 19th century and earlier, hand and horse drawn. When I do a group guided tour, I have a tendency to get a little bogged down in this gallery uh, because it's the one that I enjoy the most, but it's also, I think, the one that people know least about. The other galleries, and they're wonderful, don't get me wrong, I love the other galleries too. The other galleries have fire trucks. They're full of fire trucks. Uh, this one is full of stuff from right before fire trucks. I would consider how... this maybe more works of art than what I would necessarily fire trucks. It's it's really interesting to me when I go to different museums how much of the horse-drawn uh, carriages and, and those types of things are so much more elaborate than mm -hmm. anything that you see nowadays. I mean, you, you, you look at the old hearse that were horse-drawn, mm -hmm. and those hearse are just elaborate with the woodwork and, and that kind of yeah. stuff. And when you walk into this gallery... The first thing you see is to, to your left, you see the hand pump stuff. Then you see the horse-drawn uh, still hand pump. And then you get into more of the steam operated. And then yeah. you and, and the way that these things are decorated up and the way that they were, were taken care of and painted and, and just the presentation of them is just unbelievable. Well, we, I certainly agree with you. At vehicles in general and maybe even machines and things like that and... In general, it used to be, to my mind, much more aesthetically pleasing than most stuff like that is nowadays. That includes fire trucks, but really I'd say it extends to vehicles and such of any kind. But with firefighting, I think it's especially true. And there's a reason for that. If you boil it right down, firefighters are show-offs. Okay. It's just, it's just, that's just what it comes down to. Firefighters love... To, I mean, they don't want to just get to the fire. They want to look good getting there, okay? 
And they, so there's always been this impulse to have this kind of beautiful, elegant, ornate, aesthetically pleasing stuff. And uh, that's especially true, Lauren, of American firefighters. Now we have stuff here just right nearby here in Gallery One. We have stuff from Great Britain, from France. We have a couple pieces from Japan. Uh, and they're nice looking, handsome, well-made pieces, but they don't have that sort of elegant, theatrical flair that you find in the American pieces. And like a lot of things in American culture, that derives from competition. That is, you know, if the guys at the station down the street or the guys in the next town over or whatever, if they had some big, beautiful, impressive piece of fire equipment, then these guys right away had to start raising money so that they could have an even more beautiful, even more elegant piece of fire equipment because uh, competition is a big part of that culture of firefighting, and it still is true to this day. It's not as it's not as out there as it was probably in those days, but it, you know there, you still have that that element of kind of friendly competition. Back in the old days, it wasn't always so friendly. That uh, comes up between firefighting companies, and it has to do with the fact that essentially at at bottom they're show offs, and they, and there's let's let's face it, there's a streak of vanity. To a lot of firefighters, people you know, people who go into that line of work often do it because they want to be heroes. They want everybody to think they're awesome, and so that also manifests itself in the way they they create this beautiful material uh, to you know to kind of show off. We we have pieces. We're going to take a look at it here in just a little bit. One of the most popular pieces we have here at the museum is a parade carriage that had absolutely no firefighting function. It was strictly to be in parades and look beautiful. And it does. And it is very good at that job. <laughs> and it's, you know, but the kids always say, invariably, this looks like what Cinderella went to the ball in. <laughs> and it does. And it's not by accident that it does. And so we'll talk about that when the time comes. But yeah, firefighters, and this is all still true, okay? And firefighters love parades. And a lot of this stuff is you know designed to look beautiful in a parade and that's one of the, I always tell the little kids that's one of the reasons we should practice fire safety is that you know we don't want to be taking firefighters away uh, from their true profession of getting ready for parades you know <laughs> to go have to fight a fire or something so uh, so why don't we get it started though why don't we step over this one okay now, we're, we're going to go on down the aisle here that has a bunch of the old hand pump, hand operated uh, pieces. That is correct. These are not really big, so they must have been drawn by hand. Yes, almost everything in this, people often think that this stuff is horse drawn. Uh, until you get to the big ladder wagons and the big steamers, mostly in the later part of the 1800s, most of these pieces, there's a few exceptions, but most of these pieces were drawn by hand. The guy, they're built to be fairly lightweight. And the guys just pulled them down uh, the road by hand. And part of that is because, uh, you know, well, part of it is because a dedicated horse team for a fire uh, situation, that's an expensive proposition. And it's expensive because you have to train fire horses. It's kind of like a war horse. Right. They're, fire is not a comfortable environment for a horse. People running around yelling, all that, you know, horses are nervous animals. And so you, you have to train a, uh, a horse for fire just like you would have to train a horse for any other kind of specialized work like that. But also, uh, I mean, horses are expensive anyway, but in a small town, a village, a rural community, 
you might use your fire department half a dozen times a year. So to have a dedicated horse team just for that is not economically feasible. It wasn't until kind of the Industrial Revolution and the particular need to have smaller fire crews in big cities that you had fire horses. Prior to that, stuff was, was because the stuff got so heavy, you had to have horses for that. This stuff, though, like you said, it's fairly small, it's fairly lightweight, and the guys, the crews, the big crews would just pull it by hand. Now, what we're standing in front of here, it's number 10 in our collection, but it's the oldest large piece in our collection. It's from 1725. So I always tell the little kids, this is like, you know, this is from seven years before George Washington was born. This one was built in England, and this one also did service in England. It was in the north of England. It was privately owned. It was owned by an estate, and it was made in London by a company called Newsham. Uh, and Richard Newsham owned this company, and he made these that were sold throughout Great Britain, but also they were sold in colonial America. They were sold on the continent. Peter the Great bought a bunch of these for Imperial Russia. And this one, like I said, belonged to a private estate, but it probably also served the little village nearby this estate. And, you know, just so that people can describe this, it's made of dark wood, and it has, at one end, it, it's got a big box-like tub. Now, when he's talking, when, you, when you're talking big talk, uh, box, I like to kind of describe dimensions sure, a little bit. This thing's probably two foot wide. It's probably a total of 10 foot long. Yes. And it's got a pump handle on the side. It looks like you'd put, what, four firemen down the side to lift this pump up and down. Exactly. And to work the pump action. Yeah. And then you it's put got more the, if you wanted to. And then it's got the air nozzle coming out. Now, did they right. store water in this also? Uh, you, you might store water or you might not because there are problems with having standing water like that. But, yeah, you'd probably show up with a full tub. And a full tub's going to hold, I'm guessing, about, 60 gallons? About 80 gallons. About 80 gallons. Yeah, and there's a hopper at one end so that you, with this one, you still have the bucket brigade. You okay. know, everybody's seen in the Western movies, you know, the church is on fire and everybody's passing the buckets. Terrible way to fight a fire. That's why these were developed, because that's no way to fight a fire. But with this one, you, they didn't have good hose yet. Hose, we don't think about it, but hose, fire hose, was a tougher nut to crack than you would think. It's, it's a, uh, you know, a tube that's flexible but watertight. That's not so easy to figure out. And in England particularly, they had really bad leather hose. So this was designed not to need a hose. You still had the bucket brigade. But instead of the last guy in line feebly trying to throw his bucket of water on the fire, the last guy in line here just pours his bucket of water into the hopper. The tub holds about 80 gallons, like you said, and yes, there is a handle here, and it goes, it connects to the handle on the other side, and you pump up and down. So you got four guys on each side, at ideally. Least, at least, exactly. Okay, and you then... You might also have, there's a, now there's a couple of brake pedals here that are hooked up, and you might have a couple of guys standing up here with their feet on these, doing a little Stairmaster action, give you a little extra oomph. You really get this thing going... Uh, it gets you about 60 gallons a minute output through this this copper, uh, you know, uh, nozzle here. That means you need 60 buckets of water exactly. dropping into that hopper. It, you, they got to really fly the bucket brigade or this thing's oh. going to run out of water in just a couple minutes. But it's got and, a solid hose or solid, uh, yeah, solid neck down. Uh, it's neck down. Brass or copper uh, nozzle. Yeah, they call it a branch pipe, the nozzle that sticks okay. up. It's fixed, so you can't, you know, it doesn't have all that flexibility, but you still, it's, you can get about 60 gallons of water, you can arc it through a front door or a, 
you know, a porch window or something like that, so you don't have to get right up on top of the fire anymore. You can shoot it quite a few yards. And so it seems really primitive, but the truth is it was genius. It was a huge leap forward over the bucket brigades. And we think at the, at, here at the museum that it's really kind of, you might say, one of the unsung heroes of the Industrial Revolution. It's one of the things that, for better or worse, enabled big metropolitan areas to grow. You know, if you think about the, the great cities of the world in those days, you know, New York and London and Paris and Shanghai and Tokyo, most of them probably weren't all that much bigger than downtown Tempe right down the road here, okay? Uh, because they couldn't be. Every 10 years or so, you know, a fifth or a quarter of your, of your city would burn down. The big Chicago fire that the cow kicked over and, the lamp. And we're going to talk about that, believe me. Okay. You. Yeah, if, if, you know, if you, if, you, if you want to at least. Oh, but, I'm, I'm into talking about anything that we're here to talk you know, about. We're going to talk about that. But this gave you a real chance at preventing it. doesn't mean that big city fires didn't happen. They did. That, right. Uh, Chicago fire being the most obvious example. But this really changed the world. And if you look around the first part of the museum, you see they get bigger, they get prettier, they get fancier, they get some bells and whistles to them. They, about 1820, they do develop good, flexible fire hose that's pretty viable. But it's the same basic idea. It's handles on either side and guys on either side pumping up and down. Looks kind of like what you think of a, like a, like a railroad hand car. Right. The way they pump up and down on all of these things. And so that's... Uh, the first big state-of-the-art in firefighting technology are these hand pumpers. And if we step across the aisle here, we have... Can, can, I, can I back up just of a little course. tiny bit? Sure. Okay, I have heard in the past, and you can correct me if I'm right or wrong, that back in the day when... I won't when, correct you if you're right. <laughs> <laughs> back in the day when these things were operating, right. that <clears throat> the, there was a big competition between the different fire departments. And the competition was based on pay. If you, if you were the first one at the yeah. fire, you were able to get paid for putting out the fire. If you were the yeah. second team on, on duty or, or to show up, then, right. yeah. then, then you didn't get paid, but you still got to help fight the fire. Right. Or, or maybe at most, you know, at best, you got, you got paid, but not nearly as much. And um, so the big competition mm -hmm. between these firefighters and yeah. between these stations was they needed to have the yeah. fastest runners they could have. Yep. And they had to be the first ones there. Yeah. And if you look at the back wall here, Lauren, you'll see it's covered with insurance fire marks. And that's who was doing the paying, was the very early uh, fire insurance industry. Oh. And that was, how, that was where this money came from. And that was where this whole big deal of first water, if you got first water on the fire, then you were who got paid, or, or at any rate, who got paid the most. And so, yeah, we'll absolutely talk about that. And it, was, it did lead to very, very real problems. Uh, and it was part of why there was a lot of incentive to develop a technology that went beyond these hand pumpers. Because that, I mean, you can imagine, if you're fighting to get right. paid, it leads to all kinds of problems, brawls and all kinds oh, of nasty stuff. And, 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 like, this is actually, this would be an example this one that we're standing in front of, like I said, this is probably my favorite piece in the whole museum. I love this piece. This one uh, is a hand pumper, and it was built in 1844 in uh, the city of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. It's American, and it was built for the city of Pawtucket, Rhode Island. It was a volunteer brigade there called the Pawtucket Veterans. 
and it's big and beautiful and elegant and you know the hand pumpers I think it's the most beautiful one we have um, but it's also powerful it's also a real good piece of firefighting technology now on either side you'll notice these kind of v-shaped wooden things here right? okay let me let me let me do a little descriptive Please here. do. okay we've got wheels on this one now the first one that we were talking about had like probably 15 inch wheels they're very very small I would imagine that going down a cobblestone road would be extremely Head rough. Past, yeah. This this one here has wheels that are probably 40, 48 inches, 40 inches. Yes, they're big wheels like what you'd find on an old uh, wagon that right. was horse-drawn. This box on this is probably twice as big as what the other one is. I'm guessing this one holds 140, 160 gallons. Right. And okay. it's got a little thing in the middle, uh, uh, the a box that comes up out of the the what tank they call the condenser box. By this time, it was mostly decorative, but it was but it, it, it's you could load water into it from the top. From the top with yeah. the bucket brigade. Yeah, now you wouldn't. Now the bucket time. brigade's going to have to be pretty dang tall to figure out how to get the water right. in there because that's up that's up seven foot tall. You, you wouldn't load it from there during a fire. You would load it there prior to a fire because this one hooks up to a hydrant. Believe it or not. Okay, uh, and so they had hydrants at this point. By in time. this point, yeah. And then what year we were you saying? Of. This is 1844. Okay. And this is a, probably about as good as the hand pumpers ever got, okay? And what happened was, and, you, the, and you'll also notice that, that that condenser box is beautifully decorated with yes. murals. Now, it's the V-shaped wooden things there, those are the pump handles. They are folded up now. This is how it would have sat in the fire station or okay. while you're pulling it through the streets. And, and when you're talking about these V's, you've got you've got a, a piece of metal that comes on down for, for two pump handles. It's right. probably uh, 15 foot long. And then these V's are the handles that I'm assuming that they that they used to pump with. Exactly. But they fold up and they mm -hmm. set against the, the metal apparatus. Right. Two, uh, and then when you unfold it, you end up with two handles. And these handles are... I'll bet these handles are eight, ten foot long. Yeah, that looks right. That and looks and right. two of them fold yeah. down towards the tank, and the other two stick up to where I bet right. they're twelve foot mm -hmm. above uh, ground the level. Floor, right. Yeah. These uh, four sets of, of two wooden arms each, and what you would do is fold them down, and they would lay out horizontally. They drop into this this bracket. They'd here. lock into a bracket and yeah. then sit sit it up. Okay. And you would. And so it would all lay out horizontally, and this, these platforms, would also lay out horizontally. Okay, and now he's folding a platform out that, yeah. that's uh, a board that's probably 10 inches wide, and it folded out another three and a half feet. Right. And these must be to stand on. Exactly. There's, you know, probably 12 guys stand up here. 12 guys across uh, this board. Across the board. And the total length of this board is only going to be about 12 feet or 13 like feet. So, so shoulder to shoulder right. or maybe even worse. Oh, yeah. Very tight. Now, even allowing for the fact that people were smaller in those days. And I'm assuming uh, six are standing looking forward and six are standing looking back. Right. Because well, there's two sets of handles well, the on, handle, this, on the, each the, side. They're working this set of handles up here. Right. Okay? And then there's another uh, 13 guys that work that set of handles down on the ground, the forward set of handles down on the ground. Okay, so, so we got 20, we got 25 guys that are working just this, this one side. side. 25 guys. And we have another side. 25 on the back side of this. Exactly. So holy here, smokes, you got a 50-man yeah, crew. 50-man crew, and here is the action on it. Okay. Oh wow. So we're wow. moving the whole pump apparatus up and down. You have to imagine the handles folded down. 
But this is how it went up and down. And now, do you have pictures of this on your videos on we do. YouTube? There, we have a whole segment this, just on this. This is something that you definitely need to go take a look at, see, because this that. is just way cool. Now, I can move this. Linda has a question. Yes, yes. It looks like it's a horse-drawn vehicle. It's not, though. Okay. It, this was, I mean, it, it actually, you see, you'll see there's a harness down under there. Yeah. That was drawn at, after this was in active service. It was still used in competitions when, after it was retired. They developed that harness so that it could be pulled by one horse, oh. and the guy would also ride the horse, lucky horse, okay. huh? And, uh, but in, in practice, these, this was pulled, you know, you got a crew. Now, here's the thing. After 15, 20 minutes of these guys pumping up and down, what happens? Well, they run out of water. Not necessarily. But they're they get definitely tired. They get very tired, and they can barely lift their arms over their head. Right. So ideally, you needed a second crew of give or take about 50 guys to run this for another 15, 20 minutes. So to run this thing for any length of time, you needed about 100 guys for oh, one piece wow. of equipment. But that's a big crew that allows you to pull this thing through the streets by hand. I was going to say, uh, you're talking over a 1,000 pounds that this thing's going to weigh when yeah, you've got water in it. Plus, water in it, yeah, and the carriage so. itself weighs what? Probably uh, yeah, it's, probably know, another 400? Probably. Yeah, probably does. I, I don't really know, to be honest, what the weight on this is. But it's, and you know, you got, you're talking about, you know, steel tires, stuff like that. Now, so as I said, these guys are pumping. On the other side from where we're standing is a place that hooks up a hose, the draft hose, which goes to probably a portable wooden fire hydrant that you bring with you. So you dig down till you hit that wooden uh, water main, you, you auger open, you know, you bust open the, the water main, you screw in your portable hydrant, hook it up, and then here is your play hose, which is what you point at the fire. Now, just a okay. second. Let's back up here for a second. Okay. You're talking, these guys show up. They've got to okay. dig down three and a half, four feet. Probably. Until yeah. they find a water main. Yeah, and they have a schematic. And the water mains, the water mains were, were made out of wood at that time. Exactly. With, with a metal band around it, right. so they were wood tubes. Mm -hmm. And then they had an auger that they augered through the water yeah. main. Uh -huh. Now, did the pressure from the water main... Operate the exactly. hydrant. Yeah, that water was under pressure, so it wasn't like modern pressure. Of well, course. so how did they keep that hydrant shoved down into the wood? They'd screw. It would screw in. It would screw in afterwards. Exactly. So they had an now, auger with a with a tap on it, basically. Right. This is the beginning. You understand. Later, the city planners and so forth started building what they called standpipes into the water mains, so that so that you would just show up and hook it up like we do today. But the, originally, they would carry these standpipes with them. Okay. Well, this is and just, uh, I, I never even imagined something like this. So, so very, as soon as you drill the auger, is. now does the auger on the bottom of the hydrant, or do they drill the auger with a separate tool, and then you end up I with think, a gusher I, I coming believe out? In most, it could have been different in different cases. I believe in most cases it was a separate tool. So, yeah. you, so you're standing there with water shooting 50 feet in the air yeah. because of pressure. Trying like to tapping off of an oil gusher. Well, I'm thinking more like yeah, yeah. tapping off uh, uh, Old Faithful. Or, well, that's what it pretty much amounted to. Now, I don't know that the pressure was that high. The water was under pressure, but it, it may not have been just so that it was just a, you know, gone a gusher when they busted it open. But, but still, you're showing up, you're showing uh, up in, let's say... Uh, uh, Pennsylvania someplace yeah. or Wyoming and and it's 20 degrees outside oh, yeah. exactly. and you've got this gusher water coming up and you're trying to figure out how to yep. plug a hole before you can come over here and start pumping. It, it is. It's a lot to think about. Now, you've heard of people of our age at least have probably heard of fire, fire, uh, fire hydrants referred to as fire plugs. Yes. I don't know that they commonly are still, but that's 
that comes from after you pump the water and you fought the fire, you take out the, the uh, uh, fire hydrant and you take a, a big old one inch diameter plug and you pound it in and you plug the main that you broke open. Then you bury it, but maybe you mark it with like a steel spike or something like that, a metal spike or something. So that if you ever have to come back to the same place, pull the spike, dig down, you know, right where to dig, you pull that plug and you got water real quick. And that gives you that first water, right? Now, the story is that, and I, somebody told me this who came in on one of the tours, I don't know if it's true, but it's a good story anyway, that it used to be that because they wanted to get that first water, one of the first things you'd do is maybe send like a kid down there to hide that main with like a, a you know, pickle barrel or a, a, you know, a crate or something like that. And if another crew showed up first, another volunteer brigade showed up first and they got wise and they pushed the kid aside and took it, they eventually started say, sending like the biggest, meanest, ugliest looking SOV that they had down there carrying a, you know, an axe or a crowbar or, a, you know, something like that. And he would guard it. And supposedly, according to this guy, that became known as the plug ugly. And that is the origin oh, okay. of the plug ugly. I don't know, but I like the story. It is a good story. Yeah, exactly. And you can see how, uh, there again, you know, mm -hmm. I mean, there's big money if you show up first and get that first That's water. Exactly right. You, you know, and it'd be worth your time. the result of that was sometimes pretty bad violence uh, between these, these guys. And that's because in the big cities, not so much in the smaller towns and the rural areas, but in the big cities where there were a whole bunch of these different volunteer brigades, what they often really amounted to when you came right down to it was street gangs. Right. Uh, they tended to break down along racial or ethnic or religious lines. They fought for turf. They had, uh, you know, political influence. They would make ally alliances between themselves. You've heard of Boss Tweed, William Tweed, right. the famous uh, political machine in New York City in the, in the 1800s. Uh, William Tweed started uh, his, uh, he eventually became the head of Tammany Hall, which was this kind of social club that had enormous political influence and became, after a certain amount of time, a kind of a, a shadow government in New York. But it eventually got to where uh, he started out as a New York City firefighter, and he was known to be a really nasty fellow with an axe and a brawl. And so that, you know, that route, the local governments got really tired. There were versions of this in other cities as well. Oh, I'm sure. And, you know, the local governments got really tired of these guys, essentially gangs. And sometimes you might have a, a fire brigade, a volunteer brigade, that had, let's say, 250 members, of which maybe 75 or 100 actually went to fires because the others were just kind of parasites. They were political hangers-on. There were big advantages in many places to being a firefighter. Um, you were just kind of plugged in politically in the, in the local government in a lot of cases, for one thing. For another thing, in many areas, you got a break on your taxes. In uh, many cases, you were exempt from the draft. In many cases, you were exempt from jury duty. So a lot wow. of these guys wanted to be on, you know, on a fire department, whether they actually showed up or not. So there was all this political parasitism and corruption that happened, and, and it was just a problem. It was getting bad. And in a minute, we'll, when we finish up with this, we'll tell you about what really started the professional fire service in okay. the U.S. But you see the problem with starting it at this point.
a hundred guys to run one piece of equipment. <laughs> you need these big crews. You can't put all those guys on the city payroll. So now were these? Now were most of these volunteer fire departments? They were all volunteer. Theoretically, there were still ways to make money from it, but they were. It was all volunteer in the in, in the United States in the in the 19th century. Cincinnati, Ohio, is where the professional fire service was born in this country, and we'll talk about why in a minute. But okay. I want to finish up real quick about oh, this. Oh, sorry. That's okay. <laughs> Rabbit holes. Uh, keep yeah, going. I get it. And there's, you know, that's the thing about when you talk about this stuff, there's a, a, all these different rabbit holes you can go down. It's absolutely true. But the thing that I love about this piece, in addition to it just being big and cool, is it's beautiful. It's covered with these paintings. The one we're facing now, we believe, is uh, supposed to be Rebecca at the Well from the Old Testament. Uh, on the one side, there's an Indian sashim from what's now Massachusetts, uh, a Pawtucket Indian sashim named uh, King Philip. He's also in the Great Seal of the state of Massachusetts. There's the Great Seal of the state of Rhode Island on this side with the word hope. hope. Yep. And on the other side is St. Euphemia. In the Orthodox Catholic Church, uh, she was a, a saint that, I don't know, I guess they, the Romans tried to throw her to the lions, and the lions liked her and didn't eat her, and... So they threw her into the fiery furnace, as Romans were known to do, and supposedly she came out with, you know, completely unscathed. So you can see why firefighters would like her. Right. So these paintings, when this came into the museum long before I was here, uh, it was, as I understand it, it was just covered with white paint. And our restorer, a man you can see his painting over on the, his portrait over on the wall there with the wagon wheel. Okay. His name was Don Hale, and he restored most of these pieces that you'll see today. You can find his signature on many of them, including this one. Right. Uh, Don painstakingly removed all that paint and lacquer, and he found these beautiful paintings under that. Wow. Under that white paint. I can never uh, get my head, Lauren, around the fact that at some point in this thing's history, somebody was just like, out of heck with this and painted white paint over those murals. But uh, what Don said was that it probably saved them. It kind of kept the elements off of them for all those decades. And so, uh, but this is characteristic, again, particularly of American firefighting. Uh, American firefighters love to have this stuff, you know, lavishly decorated. Now, now and, and, and when he's talking lavishly decorated, we've got panels here with uh, real pretty wood. I'm not sure what that is. It's not oak. It looks like a teak or something. It does, yeah. And they've got a blue frame around it that's like three-quarters of an inch, and then the rest of the wagon is, is painted red with all kinds of pen striping and, and just little ornate things. That. Yeah, filigree And then you've got like your that. tower here with the paintings that he was just describing, the, the pump uh, apparatus handles are uh, all painted white with Pawtucket written on it. You've got a solid brass Rhode Island number one with brass rail around the top. It's just a gorgeous, gorgeous piece, yeah. as, as all of these yeah, are. I think this one, for me, this one kind of takes the cake in terms of the functional pieces at least. But we have stuff here that you can see with you know beautiful wood inlay designs and... It's just amazing. You know, all those gorgeous kind of, you know, swirling 19th century design styles. So it's very elegant to me. And now, now as we're walking down this, this little thing, I want to I tell people there's 2, 4, 6, 8, 10, 12, 14, 16, 18, just in this one aisle, 18 right. pieces uh, uh, that are all representative of, of things that we're talking about here. And we're going to bypass several of them. But they're all just absolutely beautiful works of art. It's it's not it's not like a, a 
what do I want to say here? It's not like just a functional piece. It's no. a functional work of art is what that, it is. And, and that was very much by design. You're exactly right. Now, what we're standing in front of here, if the one from Pawtucket that we were just talking about, if that's an example of what a bigger town or a city would have, this is an example of what a well-equipped small town or rural community might have. This one, as you can, can you guess where it's from uh, across the draft hose there? It says Badger Fire Company. So you're going to guess... I don't know where Badger is. No, it's not It's not a town name. It's from Wisconsin. Oh, you know? okay. So they love the Badgers up in Wisconsin. Okay. So this is from a little German farming town called Centerville, Wisconsin. And uh, it was built in the 1860s by a company called Rumsey in St. Louis, Missouri. And it has, uh, you know, it has a... a, a, a Kind of a small town feel to it. It's built to be space efficient. So you see the pump handles here fold in right in the center. The draft hose with Badger Fire Company painted on it flips over the top. That's what they call a squirrel tail. Okay. And you'll notice that at the end of the squirrel tail there, at the end of the draft hose, there's a little sieve on the end of the hose. Right. That's because in a in a Rural setting like that, you probably weren't drafting from a hydrant. You're probably drafting from a, a natural water source, from a, a pond. Irrigation a, ditch. Irrigation or... ditch, a creek, whatever. And so you didn't want fish and frogs and seaweed and stuff. Now, does it have a foot it. valve in it also so that the water doesn't bleed back, or did you have to prime this every time? I I don't know. Okay. I don't know. If, okay. if it has a... a, a Valve like that, I don't know where it is. Well, the, the, the usually, you know, from my experience, just running pumps and, right. and irrigation or whatever, it sits at the very end of the hose. Yeah, no. And, and then I, you can get... That being the case, I don't think so. Okay. Unfortunately, Lauren, I'm more the social history guy. The technical stuff is not always in my... That's okay. ...is not always in my wheelhouse, but it, it, I'm sure it's a, an interesting question. But what is, you know, like I said, this was built in St. Louis. It's also quite beautiful. It's very beautifully decorated with a rose design at the end and some other sort of ornate, swirly things. And kind of a neat uh, olive green right. uh, accent yeah. accent that's mm -hmm. about three-quarters of an inch. Right. And, and like he was saying, this one here is quite a bit smaller than the last piece we were talking about. This one here holds probably, what, like 60, 80 gallons again? Something like that, yes. And it's a smaller unit, but the wheels are bigger, so it would have been easier to pull down the road. Right. And it's all built to be compact so that you don't need a dedicated space in a small town like that for your for your fire station. You just stick this in somebody's barn or something like right. that. Right. And if the big bell that you passed on the way in, right. that's also from Centerville. A couple of aisles over, there's a big yellow ladder wagon with some very obviously homemade ladders on it. That's also uh, from uh, Centerville, Wisconsin. So I, I'm guessing that we basically have their whole fire department here at the museum. Uh, but what's really special to us about this, aside from the fact that it's just a neat piece, is that this actual piece was used to fight something you mentioned earlier, the Great Chicago Fire. Oh, really? Yes. October of 1871, uh, in the city of Chicago, started by... Miss O'Leary. Mrs. O'Leary's cow is what they say. Well, well, yeah, she didn't want to take blame for it. Right. Well, what, <laughs> well, what they're saying, that, you know, what historians now say is that that probably was really, truly, genuinely fake news. That that was invented by the newspapers there in uh, Chicago, or was really just by one newspaper, uh, probably to stir up anti-immigrant hatred against the Irish. Um, in the decade or more prior to the Great Chicago Fire, uh, there had been this huge influx you know, of population. Right. And a big, big part of that had been Irish immigrants. 
uh, who just were looking for new prospects. And a lot of the earlier residents of Chicago, which had been sort of this small frontier town really up to that point, uh, resented, as people often do, this right. influx of, of immigrants. And so anything to bash the Irish, right? So Mrs. O'Leary's cow ended up in the newspaper, supposedly didn't feel like getting milk one night, kicked over a kerosene lantern, and her, the barn on DeCoven Street there in Chicago went up. Mrs. O'Leary said, no, I was in bed. My cow had nothing to do with it. Um, there are a lot of alternate theories as to how the fire started, but one of the most interesting that I've heard in recent years is that it may actually have been a meteor shower. Oh, really? Uh, a lot of people saw fireballs falling out of the sky, and there were wildfires. It had been a very dry year, 1871. There were, there were terrible wildfires all over the upper Midwest. Uh, actually, there's a fire that you may have heard of it. Uh, most people have not, called the Peshtigo Fire. I have not. All right. Well, it was actually uh, orders of magnitude worse than the Great Chicago Fire. Happened in rural Michigan, uh, uh, rural uh, Wisconsin, and over the border into a bit of Michigan. Burned out of control, wiped out nine little towns, killed over a thousand people. In terms wow. of fatality, it is the worst fire, not just in American history, but recorded in world history, uh, it, other than fires that were started because of war. Like, right. You know, Hiroshima or Dresden or something like that, obviously, were worse. But in terms of a naturally occurring fire, uh, that is said to be the worst. Uh, and it happened the same days, literally the same week in October of 1871 as the Great Chicago Fire. But, you know, almost everybody remembers, you know, Mrs. O'Leary's cow and the hot time and the old town tonight and all that right. stuff. Very few people remember uh, the Peshtigo the Fire. It's just one of those weird ways that history works. But the history of the Great Chicago Fire was a very significant fire. It burned almost a third of the city of Chicago. Uh, it did kill several hundred people, unfortunately, and it was a big tragedy, but it had an interesting effect, which is to say, when Chicago rebuilt, they were like, we're not doing, we're, this isn't happening again, and so they in, enacted all kinds of, bu of building codes. Buildings had to be thus and such far apart, streets had to be thus and such, such part, but, and the whole town at the time of the Great Chicago Fire was pretty much made out of wood. Everything was close together. The buildings were made out of wood. Even the sidewalks were made out of wood. It was extremely flammable. And so they, uh, they changed all of that. Buildings had to be stone or brick or a certain percentage stone, stone or brick. Alleys had to be wider. Streets had to be wider. Uh, the uh, sidewalks had to be paved instead of made out of wood. And it was very successful. And other cities, as they grew, began adopting this plan. So Chicago was made a much bigger, much stronger city because of the Great Chicago Fire, tragic though it was. But not only that, other cities, when built along that line, were able to grow much more successfully because they, you know, they had to kind of bite right. the bullet and do these, enact these measures which they adopted. Not many people have heard about the Great, uh, Great Seattle Fire, which happened a little later. And was a pretty bad fire. Only one person died in it, and even that, it's debatable. Uh, but it, it was a, you know, again, Seattle was just kind right. of a small fishing town, pretty much at that time. And they adopted the Chicago-style uh, ordinances. And when they rebuilt, if you ever get up to the Museum of History and Industry in Seattle, 
Uh, I highly recommend you go in there. It's a really cool museum in general, but they have a terrific display that I really envy on the great uh, Seattle fire. It's a really good one. Um, but it's, uh, it was an example of the influence that the Chicago fire had, that Seattle actually grew enormously, exponentially, because of the fire they had, and in part it was because of people, workmen, who came in to rebuild, and were just kind of like, well, it's nice here, I'm going to stay here. Right. And so that actually resulted in a boom for the city as over the few years it took them to rebuild. Huh. So anyway, this is the, uh, th th this one, the guys in this town loaded this onto a flat car and they, they went down to Chicago and they didn't get there till the fourth day. So it's hard to say how much was left to do. But supposedly they sprayed a little water on day four of the Great Chicago Fire. Wow. All right. So now let's skip ahead of Okay, we're walking. We're walking down through this aisle and and uh, looking at several other pieces here. This is, uh, like I said, works of art that are just unbelievable. Now you were talking oh. about the water mains, right? Right. Well, now we're standing by a plexiglass display case, and we have some artifacts of early firefighting in it. But one of the pieces that we have is just simply a length of main main plumbing from a city. And no, that just looks like a log that's just a big old hollowed out log, and, and then it's then it's been beveled down on the edge exactly. and on the outside edge to where the pieces fit together. Yeah, and still to this day, in <laughs> one town or another, I know they not too long ago they found a bunch of them in Washington well, D.C. while they were uh, digging out to remodel. They found a bunch of these pipes still just buried there. Uh, so they just went on out, cut logs that were approximately what? Well, they probably right. had several different sizes, but this one here is six inch, eight inch in right, diameter, like that, yeah. and then they ran a three inch borehole through the middle. Right, that's exactly it. And they, you can see they carved down a stem so they could right. put it into the next piece. Yeah, they they had one that was flared out wider on right. one side, and the other side stuck out. It was very much more laborious than the you know than the uh, the iron uh, pipes that came in later. But, as I said, you'd dig down, you'd, you'd plug into this, then when you were done, you'd plug it and leave it, but you always wanted to have it, you know, ready if you need to come back right. to the same place, right? And as I said, this led to clashes and brawls, some of them quite violent. Well, one night, one Saturday night in Cincinnati, Ohio, there was a fire at an empty factory, a woodworking factory, a planing mill. And uh, 13 different fire companies showed up, and they didn't fight the fire, they fought each other. Uh, it was a terrible fight, brawl, went on for hours, turned into a gunfight. Several guys were killed, and nobody ever touched the burning factory. That factory and several other buildings nearby burned down to the ground, and nobody ever touched them. And the city fathers were like, in Cincinnati were like, that's it, we've had enough of this, we're getting rid of these volunteer brigades, and we're going to uh, start a professional fire service, which they'd wanted to do for a long time. In Cincinnati, there actually was the American Fire Engine Company, and they by that time were making steamers. And the steamers allowed, if you could afford one, and if you could afford the horses to pull it, the steamers allowed uh, for professional fire crews, because you didn't need those big crews anymore. And so Cincinnati was the first to do it. Soon after, Chicago followed suit, Pittsburgh, Philadelphia, D.C., Baltimore, New York and Boston were late to the party. Uh, it was 1865, it was after the Civil War, before New York went uh, to a fully professional crew. And they were, because they were real resistant to, because these guys were so connected and they didn't want to give up that civic power that they had. And so you, uh, 
it was a big shock, though, to the civic system because you would go from, in a town like New York, you'd go from having six, 7,000 firefighters, and in one day you had fewer than 1,000. Wow. And all these guys were just out in the cold. But within a few years, the citizens there saw that it was a much better, much more efficient kind of a, kind of a system. So, uh, that, but, you know, <coughs> that was in the big cities. In the small towns, because they couldn't afford the steamers, they stuck and with volunteer with the hand pumpers, and they needed those big crews, so they stuck with a volunteer brigade. Truthfully, in some really rural places, probably including a lot of Arizona, they probably stuck with the with the bucket brigades. Uh, wow! But uh, for a long time, but it, that remains true. Okay, in big cities and larger towns, you have to this day you have professional fire services. But if you get out to like where I come from in Pennsylvania, my little hometown. Firefighting is still done by volunteers. Our towns too. Almost yeah. all the towns. Yeah. You know, they may have they may have a couple of people that work at exactly. the fire station in some of the bigger mm -hmm. cities around. Yeah, you there. might have a paid chief, but, maybe a paid right. driver. Yeah, but yeah. but when that fire alarm goes off, mm -hmm. you see guys coming from their job exactly. or, or from their house or out of town uh -huh. or whatever, and they're all racing on in. They're all they've all got their lights on their truck, almost 75%. so they can speed a little bit. Mm -hmm. Exactly, and you're not going to get your job done today if right. there's a fire because right. your plumber's gonna gonna uh -huh. be there at the job at the That's fire. It. Almost seventy five percent of the firefighters in the United States to this day are volunteer firefighters. Wow. So now, the next now, thing I want to show you, hang on one second, because I want to kind of cut off the uh, little bit of a noise distraction here. But we're going to head up this aisle, and I want you to check out these uh, three carriages, which I, you know, are probably among the prettiest things that we have in the museum. And we're going to stop at the one at the end. Uh, at the far end and, and talk about it. Okay, okay, before we get there, okay. you were talking about the primitive ladder trucks. Yeah. And this ladder, these ladders are made out of uh, tree poles Local that are. Poles, yeah. What are they? Thirty foot long. Sure. And, and they're pulled on it. They're pulled on a wagon that's twenty five foot long right. with big wheels. Again, hand pulled. Lined with brigade buckets. And so it's lined with brigade buckets. Now these uh -huh. buckets are all leather, aren't they? Right. Exactly. And they, they, you know, so even if you had a pumper, this one's from Centerville, Wisconsin, like where right. you know, the same place where. You know, you still might have these buckets so that you can start attacking the fire even until you get everything hooked up, or or if it's far away from a water source. So they and uh, you got fourteen buckets yeah. on each side, so you can have twenty eight guys in your bucket brigade right. running back and forth. Well, this is a, clearly a homemade job. You know, some local guy was given the job of building these ladders, and they're uh, hooked at one end. And you know, so it's as you can see now when you started getting ladders. Big ladder wagons like this. I mean, Centerville's a really small town. But um, in big cities, they needed these because buildings were starting to get taller. Right. And you need to go up and get people out. And ladders are really heavy. Right. Really heavy. So this, you know, this one could be hand or horse drawn. But when you start to get those big, sophisticated ladder wagons, that, was, that along with the steamers, was one of the things that made you require horses. And then they also had pipe wagons too, right? Where they would take hose that were that were fifteen foot long yeah. lengths, and they had those stacked on the. I mean, if you come on the from sides if you come from a smaller town, you you know you may remember something will be called a hook and ladder company, or something okay. will be called a hose company, or something will be called an engine company. That is, you know, that goes back to those days when one company just brought hose. They bring they bring uh, this is a. 
you know, a ceremonial one. Right. But that one is not, for instance. That, that actually carries a, a hose on a reel. They, they'd just bring the hose. Another company would just bring the ladders. Another company would just bring the pumper. You okay. Know? And it was eventually the fire truck that combined all of those functions. And something else I saw over here, too, that okay. uh, I wanted to bring up was sure. everybody's familiar with the bright red helmets mm -hmm. or, or hats that they have with the long yeah. bill that goes out the backside. Right. And over here, I saw leather helmets. Yes, the early helmets, well, actually, the earliest helmets uh, mostly weren't leather. The earliest helmets uh, often were metal, and they were based on European military officers' helmets okay. from the 19th, 18th and 19th century. And they really were not the greatest. Uh, metal's not the greatest thing to be around. You know, I'm sure, it, I'm sure heat kind of heat kind of boiled yeah. your brain. Yeah, exactly. I mean, they would, you know, the, the concept of the helmet, other than just looking impressive, which is never something that's not on a, a firefighter's mind. Right, right, right. But, you know, in addition to that, it was the idea is it would protect you if stuff was falling out of the roof and hit you on the head. So, but that's, so they, they based it, like a lot of the rank systems and so forth in uh, firefighting are based on military, uh, came out of military experience that these guys would often have, and the designs often would too, um, of the helmets and of other things. Uh, but later, they did begin to adapt them with the idea of them actually being functional for firefighting. What you described, the traditional, you know, American-style fire helmet, which had that brim that kind of tipped back a little bit and had the high band, you know, emblem front end. Um, that was, sometimes that was leather, later it became, you know, plastic or, or some kind of synthetic material like that. But it was supposed to protect you from stuff falling out of the ceiling and bonking you in the head um, and offer you a little bit of protection, just like a construction worker's helmet. Would. Right. But that tilted brim at the back, the idea was that if water is pouring out of the, the ceiling, that gathers on that brim and then it's directed like you know like a spout almost okay. off of the back of the thing and doesn't go bad you know it doesn't go down the back of your shirt or whatever. I was thinking it was a debris. Yeah, and it's that diverter, too. but it is that too. But, but the water it, makes you know, perfect is, sense. Know, it would channel the water off of you, uh, so it wouldn't go down go down your back basically. Okay, now let's work on the parade vehicle. Okay. Sorry, sorry to back you up. That's and okay. That's some okay. of that is this just... parade vehicle. This is a big shaped like a hose carriage. And this one is from Fishkill Landing, New York, and it has beautiful engraving of firefighting imagery on it on its uh, side. I don't really know what the metal is; could be nickel. I'm not really sure. But I know it's, it's bright and yeah, shiny. This bright is and shiny and again. If you get a chance to go to your YouTube site, I'm sure mm -hmm. that you've got something on each one of on these. these pieces, yes. But these pieces are just. Well, the first time I came here, I stood in awe at the shiny, the bright. Mm -hmm. Uh, these wheels are, are five foot round, right. and the the uh, hose reel that he's talking about is probably three foot round in diameter, and will hold what? Probably two hundred feet of hose. Uh, well, it would if there was a if place there was to put a, a hose right, on, but right. There isn't. Now, if you step down to the end here, though, and they've got lanterns on them that are again all nickel plated or yeah. whatever, uh, just beautiful, beautiful pieces. Here. Now, this one down at this end of the aisle is. The little kids always say this looks like what Cinderella went to the ball in. And that's not by accident. It's supposed to look like a royal carriage. It's shaped like a hose reel, but again, no place to put a hose in it. But if you look at the one in the middle there, this was built in Reading, Pennsylvania in uh, the 1850s. It was built for the city of Philadelphia. And 
it's got a hose on it. That's a functional piece of firefighting equipment. And you see it's not much less ornate than the other two. It's got the beautiful clamshells and it's right. really, you know, high style, right? But uh, that one was actually built to be taken to a fire. And therein lies the tale, okay? You'll find that, like I said, firefighters, especially American firefighters, they love to have this beautiful, elegant, elaborate stuff. The trouble was occasionally I had to take it to a fire, and it would get smoke, water, mud, get dinged up, scratched up. You know, anything you can imagine would get on that thing. And these guys got really tired of seeing this stuff that they love so much get beat up in regular use. So eventually they developed just a very simple uh, hose reel that they called a crab or a jumper or a spider. And they would pull that behind another rig to take the actual hose to the fire. <laughs> but if you could afford it, you would have something like this. <coughs> excuse me. You would have something like this to take to the parades. And this one um, was built uh, in New York City by a carriage maker called Buckley and Merritt. It was built in 1870, and it was built for the Hotchkiss Fire Department of Derby, Connecticut. Uh, and they, they had it for a very long time. I actually talked to a guy from that department who said that as a 17-year-old kid, first on the department, he was still pulling this in parades uh, in the 19, early 1960s. Now, uh, as this goes down the street, these big carriage wheels turn. That turns this leather belt, and the center, the hose reel part, turns. Oh, wow. Okay, and, now, what, now what he's showing here is there's a pulley on the back wheel that has a leather strap that comes on up to another pulley on the center uh, hose reel. And the center hose reel spins inside with all of the... Uh, what do you want etching? Well, it's this, mirrored, but it has this. this it's mirrored these, these with etching designs, and these exactly. etching designs would turn kind of like a right. kaleidoscope. Exactly that. Now, a lot of times, parades in the 19th century were at night, and so you'd have a in these one of these lanterns which have different paint. And now he's he's, he's pointing out ca carriage lanterns here, and these uh -huh. carriage lanterns have an amber lens in them, or a red lens, or blue in some cases. Are they blue in some, some of cases? Them are, yeah. And it says Hodgkiss on it, as far as the the right. little glass panels. And this thing has three uh, bells in the front. Right. It's got. I mean, this thing is just unbelievable yeah, to well, look at. Well, and, so and if, if the, the more you look, the more you see. Right. I mean, if, if the lanterns were lit, then at night, the surface would pick that up as it turned, oh. and you get that beautiful kind of 19th century disco ball light show going, right? With the blue and the red, with with the blue and the red right, lenses yeah. and stuff, you would. Now, oh, up top, that'd be the kids always giggle at naked guy with grape leaf and wings on his feet, uh, but he uh, was, um, well, if you were a Greek, you'd call him Hermes. If you were okay. a Roman, you'd call him Mercury, but he was the son of Zeus in Greek mythology, so he was... Uh, a symbol of speed. I mean, if you're, he's the messenger of the gods, so if you're the messenger of the gods, you better be fast, right? Right. So uh, he, a, a lot of uh, firefighters, both in Europe and America, used him as a, like a lot of things in firefighting. It's a way of bragging. It's saying like that's how fast we get to fires. It's like we got wings <laughs> on our feet. You know? He's also used by FTD Flowers for their delivery service. Okay. Okay. Uh, you know, and it's for the same reason. This is how fast we get flowers to your mother. You know. Now um, up front, as you said, there are bells. Now, these, and one of the big things in the 19th century is everybody had to have a motto, right? Mottos were a big deal. So this one says, read it off. To do good is our intent. Right, which seems kind of basic, but not a bad motto to live by. Right. But 
With this one, to tell you the truth, Warren, to show off, really, was a little bit <laughs> That was their intent? intent? In to this show case, off. yeah. That wouldn't have looked nearly as good exactly. as a logo, you know, though. It, you know, it was uh, good marketing for the town and for the fire department <clears throat> to the town, you know. Sometimes fire departments have to ask for a lot of money or a lot of appropriations right. for equipment and stuff like that. They want to be able to, you know, they want to make sure that a fire department is something that the locals can take real pride in. Okay, and this is an example of helping to build that. Um, and you also mentioned that there are three bells. Am I going to blow out your mic if I ring just nope, one of them? Nope, you can ring them. Okay. That's just one. And these bells are all on springs, so yeah. as this thing's going down the road, exactly. these, these bells are going to be ringing constantly. Company. Yeah, and these, these metal tires are not going over nice paved roads. Oh, no. They're going over dirt roads, mud puddles, cobblestones, all that stuff. And so, these bells, they sit at they sit at what a, a ten degree angle. Right. Instead of sitting down straight, they sit out forward yeah. on these springs. So, so they're going to be just dinging yeah. the whole time. You got a lot of racket. Whenever you got firefighters, you got to have some noise. Firefighters love noise. <laughs> now, this stuff, this kind of thing, still is true. Okay, uh, especially smaller town firefighters, you'll find that what they'll often have instead of this, they'll have a beautiful vintage fire truck, well, kind of like the ones we We were here. just at a parade, the fair parade in right. our in our local county in Wyoming. Yeah, they had a 1924 fire truck that went on down that exactly. still had the siren right. that they could uh, yeah. make go and, and followed mm -hmm. up, of course, by the rest of the fire crew right. that's blowing their horns and tooting their. And that's what they do. That, know, that becomes the function of that beautifully restored vintage piece. Is it's the it's this it's right. what this used to be and it's in the you know the the cherries the cherry queen and the cherry festival parade or whatever right, it is right right and uh, and that's so these traditions just take slightly different shapes as the years go by now if we step over here now just a second is this a pneumatic uh, or this? is this just a hand crank from the back <laughs> I'm looking at a I'm looking at a cart with uh, two wheels it's got a hose in the center it's got a, a probably a sixty gallon Water tank mm -hmm. and it's it's hand pulled again. It's got a, a shaft going out the front with two handles, but it's got a, a hand crank in the back that I'm assuming is well. I'll tell you what it is. This uh, piece is a what they is a chemical cart. And oh, how it worked is this was this one was probably for use in a factory or a big warehouse or something like that. Uh, it was something that would be likely be privately owned. Okay. And it was sold by a company from Indiana called Boyer. And this is one of the very few pieces we have here at the museum that was never in active service. This was a floor model. This spent oh. years and years being the demonstration model for Boyer for selling these things to, to, to factories and so forth. And what it did, and you'll see some smaller versions of it over on the wall in our display of fire extinguishers, it contained... Uh, water and sodium bicarbonate. It was basically a big seltzer bottle. Okay. And you would introduce a little vial or a little a little bottle of sulfuric acid, and that crank was to agitate it. Okay. Mix in that sulfuric acid, and it produces carbon dioxide, and it becomes a big spray bottle. Small amount of water. This one, you're probably right, this is probably a 60-gallon tank. A lot of them carried only 40 gallons, but it would be expelled under tremendous velocity. And so you would, it would really squelch that fire, really knock it out. And uh, so it was what they called, I like to call an initial attack vehicle. In a case like this, if you have an industrial fire, you might even be able to put it out if you get to it early enough. But 
Uh, Bet they wish they had one of those in Beirut last week. Bet they do, man. That was such a a horrifying, tragic thing. No doubt. Ongoingly such a horrifying, tragic thing. Um, But you'll also find these chemical tanks on some of the early uh, trucks. And they that was because it, it wasn't supposed to deliver a lot of water. It was supposed to deliver a little water really fast and really hard and knock down that fire so that you kind of dampened it and, and got it, you know, got it knocked down a little bit while the pumpers and, and so forth are getting hooked up and they start putting serious water. The trouble was once you were done, you were done. It took hours to reload this thing in most cases. Wow. Now that we do have one that was designed in Albany, New York, uh, and eventually went into service. It never went into production, but it went into service with the Cleveland, Ohio fire department. And that had this kind of ingenious system for reloading it within a few minutes and getting a second blast. But the chemical tanks were very, very useful. It's just that they had this limited amount of water that they could get on the fire. Okay. Now, if you step over here, you'll notice... We start getting into the steam. We do indeed. But I wanted to stop and let me ask you a little quick fire safety question. Okay. All right, so you're in a, a house or a building and it's on fire and it's filling up with smoke. So what do you do? How do you respond to that? Get down as far as you can because smoke rises. Very, very good, young man. And try and wipe your eyes so you can see. Right. Well, that's, you get down, uh, you know, everybody knows, like the little kids that come through here, everybody's heard of stop, drop, and roll. And everybody should. That's very important. But that's if the fire is on you. Right. If it gets on your shirt or your pants or your skin, yes, you stop, cover your face, and roll, and you do it right away without even taking a second. You get down on the ground and roll and roll over as fast as you can, and, and the, your body rolling over that fire, in most cases, it really will put it out because you cut off that oxygen. But there's another little rhyming thing that we wish more people knew, and that's fall and crawl. In a house, and it's fully, most people who die in house and building fires uh, don't die from actually getting burned. They die from s- smoke. They get, you know, smoke inhalation exactly. fills up you, your lungs and you, you cough just it. like it's sitting around the campfire. Exactly, you know, but a, but in a much more much more intense way. Well, and, and also, also the toxins. Toxins are often involved in in fires from houses. So smoke is the real most common killer in fires, and uh, the uh, usually a lot of times by the time the fire gets to you, you're already dead. If you're if you're stuck in a building or a house, right. to, to put it grimly, um, but you're exactly right. You what you do is you you fall and crawl. You get down on the ground and you crawl because smoke goes up, right? So down near the floor is where the good fresh air is that you can breathe, most importantly, but also that you can see in. So you because also if there's smoke, you have a chance of getting lost in your own house. Well, it blinds you exactly. <coughs> now. We're standing in front of a guy who looks like he's something out of a scary movie. Uh, a, a guy in a, in a blue peacoat. It's a mannequin wearing a blue peacoat, but on his head is a helmet of, of kind of over the... And you can't see the smile on my face of yeah. realization of what I'm just looking at. Yeah. This is, this is one of the very early... Yeah, well, because you also very wisely are behind a mask, as am I. Uh, we do, by the way, just to quickly plug that in, in our current situation, we do require that people who come into the museum wear masks, and we ask that they socially distance, that they stay at least six feet away from people, you know, anybody not in their own party. Uh, but we do have a lot of room here, so we are able, we think, to open with, with considerable safety yes. as long as people follow some common sense. You've got wide aisles. Yeah, you've got exactly. You're very much. Uh, but 
the, our, this guy is, uh, we call him our Seba Gorman man because he was built by a British-German company called Seba Gorman, and they made diving bells and diving helmets and stuff like that, but they also made one of these early attempts at a, at a breathing helmet. It's got a little chimney on top that exhausts, hopefully, the bad air, and it's also attached to a hose, and the hose goes out to this kind of bellows-like thing outside. It's a Greek invention called a spherulator. So his buddy stays outside and he pumps this thing and pumps, you know, hopefully fresh, breathable air into his helmet. Must have been really, really unpleasant. Well, now what we're looking at here is we got the mannequin that has a uh, uh, axe stuck to his side for his breaking belt. through things. Right. He's wearing uh, um, what I'm assuming is uh, wool clothes. Yeah, it looks like a big peacoat. For insulation, mm -hmm. yeah, like a big peacoat. And he's got a helmet on, and this helmet looks like something you'd see a jouster wear. Right. It, exactly. But other than it's made out of leather, it's got two uh, glass panels that come out at a V that can open up so he can uh, breathe if he's if he's where he can breathe. Mm -hmm. And it kind of gives him an ang or a view to where he can see couple different directions, uh -huh. but then it's got an air hose that comes out of it, and this air hose has to be probably 60 feet long and goes to this big bellows that, like he said, his buddy would stand out there and pump, but it brings the air in and has a little exhaust valve out the top, Yeah, now you'll and notice it's really, the, really cool looking. Yeah, it's very cool looking, but you'll notice this little sign, code of signaling by means of a lifeline, one tug, more air, two tugs, less air, Three tugs, help me out. Oh, man. So I'm guessing it was three now, tugs. Now, what were they more. tugging on? Did he have another line, no, or was he tugging hose. on the hose? He'd, he'd tug on the hose, so not a high-tech system. I was going to say, and, and your hose could get hung up on right. your way in by it's something falling on it. Or, yeah, and exactly. There are no tugs when yeah. you need it. No, that's, so and this thing looks really primitive, but the truth is that they were using these in Britain and other parts of Europe up until about World War II. Really? In some places, yes. Wow! Now, if we step over that is when I saw that, I just had to smile because it's it's so intriguing. Yeah, I find it fascinating. I'm I'm very fond of. Him. We had the uh, NBA great Bill Walton came in here and uh, was tour and toured the place. He's a really fun guy, and uh, I have a picture of it somewhere. But he's actually taller than our Siva Gorman man, even though he Siva Stand Gorman man is standing on a platform. Wow! So uh, now here we have this is an American classic right here, Lauren. This is our Metropolitan Steamer <coughs> from Cincinnati, Ohio. This is a classic specimen of a steam fire engine. And it looks like something out of Willy Wonka's factory. That's oh, it what does. Kids say. Uh, very steampunk, literally. Very. Uh, but we have a big black tank that is full of water. And that water is not to put on the fire. That water is to boil. Down below it, there's a coal furnace, and you would boil that water, and it would stay... You, the idea was to keep the water, like, simmering hot, almost boiling, ideally 24 hours a day. So they kept the fire going all the time in the... Uh -huh. in the uh, exactly. They kept those coals banked, and in some small fire stations, it was actually the furnace in the fire station. The radiated okay. heat was sufficient to heat the fire station. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, but when the call comes in, in the really slick urban fire stations, they actually had it uh, rigged so that the call coming in would pop open the stable doors. The horses, there were horses now for this one. The horses were very well trained. They would take their place in front of the rig. Uh, the now talk would, about the well-trained horses, because I've heard stories 
that these horses were were the harness was hung from the ceiling. That's exactly these right. horses when this bell went off would come on over, they'd back mm -hmm. right into place. The harnesses would just drop right down on yeah, the horse. Drop the harness and in, they could harness them, them, they could latch up the harnesses and be ready to go mm -hmm. like in thirty seconds or a minute or something like that. It, yeah, if they really had their act together, they used to be able to roll one of these out of a fire station in about ninety seconds to two minutes. Which is just unbelievable. Well, if you've ever harnessed uh, a horse, exactly. ninety seconds for a horse harnessing but these, is yeah, that that was a uh, they, they were very specially trained horses, and it's really uh, about the same amount of time that it would take a modern fire engine company to get a, a modern a, a truck out of a modern fire station. Now, what nearly as fast after that? You're going, you know, uh, your horse. Now, was this drawn by two horses or by four? It, it, it varied, but this one was drawn by three. By three. Yeah. Okay. And and what we're looking at here is we're looking at a wagon that would that would look like your normal chuck wagon or, or old covered wagon as far as wheelbase and wheel size and that type of stuff. But it's got a boiler on the back that has a coal uh, furnace on the bottom that you could keep stoked up with coal. I'm assuming that's probably four foot around. Yes. Yeah, and then it's got a water tank maybe. sitting on top for the boiler, and then it's got beautiful chrome top piece for the smokestack. Yeah, the smokestack is is chromed, and then there's a scuttle back here, which would be full of a kind of specialized coal that they called cannel, uh, that was a very low ignition point. It burned very fast and very hot and very very dirty. So it would you'd always get that big nasty greasy right you know, stream of smoke coming out. Um, but so back here in the scuttle, you would, would ride the engineer and or the stoker. Sometimes they were the same person who would tend the engine and or the and, and or the fire. Up front, you had a driver, and in another wagon like the one down at the end there with the Dalmatians on it, you would have uh, maybe a few more guys that would come with uh, you know axes and ladders and hoses. <laughs> I beg your pardon, but you would have. Um, Basically, you would have uh, an urban fire station could now be staffed with 8, 10, 12 guys a shift. So now, that was the big influence that this had. It was economically feasible for firefighting to be uh, a job, an actual paid position, in the big cities, because the horses were really expensive. Right. So, you, you know, to justify, it, it took a big city to justify, and, you know, they were, these weren't just any horses, these were... Big, muscular, strong draft horses. Like, like, the, like the Clydesdales. Clydesdales, Percherons, that kind of thing. Yeah, Belgians, uh, yeah. Yeah, and, and, so, and you needed three of them. You needed, you know, veterinary care. You needed food. You needed to train them. You needed to maintain them. And about every 10, 12 years or so, you needed to replace them. That was, about, that was the working life right. of, a, of, a, of a workhorse in the 19th century. So that was a lot of money. That was it, and, and this, these were expensive, but they, you know, and they were high maintenance. You needed an engineer who knew what he was doing. But if you uh, had one of these, you might have it for 20, 25 years. So you got a lot for your money, but the horses were a different story. Now, we have the engine here. You know, as your water's boiling, the, the smoke is forced into, <coughs> excuse me, steam pipes in the bottom, bottom part of that smokestack. Right. And the pressure, nobody over there, right? The pressure would turn this. We have this hooked now. Up he's got this hooked up to an electric motor, so that you can see how the how the steam pump actually works. Right. It brings the steam out, runs it through the the. I, I, it's not a condenser. It's it's a cylinder, mm -hmm. 
where it pushes the piston up and down, which right. drives another uh, crankshaft exactly. that comes down into the pump. You can see the interlocking gears here. It's pre-ball right. bearing technology. And in the, in the middle there is a big uh, flywheel, which kind of right. keeps the momentum going. And that turns those crankshafts uh, up and down in these big old pistons, and that creates a vacuum. And that vacuum is what's used to suck water through these big, hard suck. And these are, what, hoses. four or five-inch hoses? Right. And they're, they're big. Those are your draft hoses. And then you have, you know, a wagon like that one comes by with a smaller gauge of hose and throws it down to you. And you hook that up here or here, and that is the, what you point at the fire. And you get, you know, that, <coughs> my big, <coughs> I beg your pardon, excuse me. No, nope, we're good. You uh, talk too much and you start coughing. Yeah, I yeah, the same it's thing. Uh, starting to get a little bit of <coughs> effect on the, on the voice box. But um, that big hand pumper that I showed you from Pawtucket, Rhode Island, probably as good as a hand pumper's got, that'll get you about 250 gallons of water a minute, which is excellent. This would get you six to seven hundred gallons of water. Wow. So you you know you could really kind of sock a fire in the nose with this thing. Um, so that was the big advantage of it. The big disadvantage, and I can tell you, Lauren, I can tell you this from firsthand experience because I've helped move this thing. It's really, really, really heavy. So you oh, got to have sure. those big those, those big horses. There's not a prayer of pulling this by hand, especially because you no longer need the big crews. So now again it becomes feasible for firefighting to be a city job. So these, these didn't last nearly as long as the hand puppers. The hand puppers were the state of the art for a couple of centuries. But when these came in, in the, in the 1850s, and they lasted, the latest you would have probably seen one of these, most places would be maybe 1920. Okay. Okay. Um, they got replaced about 100 years ago by what? The fire truck. Right, exactly. For the combustion engine. The reels yeah. and, yeah. And that's the thing. Firefighting is, in the small C sense of the word, conservative. Firefighters are very, very reluctant to change. There's a favorite joke in the fire service. The two things firefighters hate are change and the way things are now. You know? <laughs> uh, but, uh, Those are the only two things, huh? <laughs> exactly. But with, when the chance came in for firefighters to get rid of the horses, they were like, yes, we're doing it. Uh, because not that they didn't love the horses, but the horses were expensive, they were uh, high maintenance, all of that stuff. When the fire trucks came in, you know, they didn't scoff. They were like, yes, let's do this, most of them. Right. So Now, we're all, right now, we're standing next to the steamer. We're standing in front of a display that we love here. Um, I love this one. Yeah, this is a sled, a firefighting sled. This is... So what they call up in Michigan, uh, which is where this is from, a pung, P-U-N-G. That's okay. the Algonquin word for sled. But um, this is a fire sled. This was uh, from the city of Nagani, Michigan, which is on the Upper Peninsula, and it's really nasty and cold up there most of the time. And uh, this was to take firefighters and axes and hoses and ladders and so on uh, to a fire at a barn or a farmhouse or whatever out in the, uh, during, you know, when, when it was winter. And, um, you know, one of the things that I like about it, it's a big, brown, beautiful, you know, the, the, you heard of a one-horse open sleigh. This is a two-horse open sleigh. But it's not just an old, I mean, this thing is, is big. It's, it's 12 feet long. It's got two uh, rails of, sl of uh, mm -hmm. sled and tracks could, on it. And you it. could remove those skis. tracks. Skis. Yeah, exactly. You could remove those tracks in the summer if you wanted to put wheels on it, too. 
Okay, and it's about four foot wide. It's right. got a ladder on it that's uh, 12 foot long, a place for a couple people to drive right. horses in front. You've got a hose bed full of hose. Yeah, it's, it's just a beautiful piece, and it's dark brown. Uh, now, of course, if they don't hear you coming, one of the things I like about it is, you know, this. <laughs> it's got a little hand lever that you can put in there, and it, and it runs the, the bell up front. Right. And you got to keep pushing it in in order to get that exactly. bell to, to move. A hand, I'll show you that partly because I wanted to ring that bell, but partly because... It shows how when you have different environments, you have to have different kinds of equipment that adapt to whatever those environments are. I mean, here in Phoenix, this would have been pretty much useless, but even up in Flagstaff or Prescott or Sedona, you know, back in 1890, this would have come in handy part of the year. Yeah. Now, this was built by Studebaker. Oh, um, really? Studebaker, people don't always know that Studebaker, before they made cars, uh, made really a little bit of everything, but they made, they, their specialty was things like horse carts, and sleds wagons and, wagons and, and covered like wagons and exactly. I, I mean they were making that stuff clear back in the early 1800s exactly. Studebaker yeah. was a big time they, they went way back but we had a Studebaker car club come in here for a tour and boy they went nuts when they saw this they took all these pictures we ended up on the cover of their newsletter and everything it was a big deal but we also had uh, a group of very elderly people from Ahwatukee a suburb of, of Phoenix here and uh, from a retirement community and they came in here and, and there was this great old guy. He was in a wheelchair. He's 90, 94 years old, if I recall. And uh, everybody was kind of waiting up front while the activities lady got him signed in. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, this guy busts out with, I was a firefighter in the city of Nagoni, Michigan. Like, Excuse me. You know, so I bring wow. him back here, and we got a great picture of him. His, his name was Doug. He was really cool. Did he remember driving it? That's what I wanted. I Because I, he was 94. I mean, he, yeah, he, he could have had this. When, oh, yeah. You know, <laughs> when he was a firefighter as a young man. But uh, if he did, he kept it to himself, put it that way. But uh, he was, uh, that was a big thrill for me. Yeah. All right, so last thing here in Gallery 1, the Dalmatian. That's Ro Rosie, okay. named, named by my daughter. And that's Pete, uh, his, uh, her friend. So why are the Dalmatians associated with a fire service? I have no idea, right. but I'll bet you're going to tell me. I'm going to tell you. I'm I need to hear this story. Well, Dalmatians, I mean, uh, if you ever watch the Westminster Kennel Club dog show or something like that, you will see that they are still classed with the working breeds. Okay. It's just that what they were bred to do mostly doesn't exist anymore. So now they're mostly just used as pets uh, or sometimes mascots. Um, in Europe, they were referred to as Dalmatians because the breed was supposed to have originated on the Dalmatia coast in what's now Croatia. Okay. In America, they were often called coach dogs or carriage dogs. And that's because that was what they did. They were to run alongside urban horse teams, coach teams, and they would sort of encourage the horses, they would bark, they would sort of announce that a big uh, carriage was going through an intersection. But their biggest job, as strange as it seems, is they were guard dogs. Uh, the horse theft was actually a much bigger problem for people in the 19th century than car theft has been for us in modern right. times. People stole horses constantly because um, there just wasn't a very good way to keep them secured. Right. And uh, so if, you know, Peter Rosie here saw somebody come up to that horse that she didn't know, she'd hopefully bite him on the leg or chase him away or whatever, or at least bark and raise hell. 
And so that was actually kind of what they were for. Um, the Budweiser Clydesdales, for instance, they still use uh, Dalmatians, uh, but not many people have big horse-drawn carriages anymore, so right. now the Dalmatians are kind of out of work. They're, and, you know, it's a funny thing. They're, uh, you know, there was a big vogue after those Disney movies came out of people wanting Dalmatians, but they're, they're wonderful dogs, but they're not low-maintenance dogs. They're kind of high-maintenance. They're kind of high-strung, nervous. They can be a little feisty. And horses, of course, are kind of high-strung, nervous, jumpy animals. And when you get the two together... They just kind of chill each other out. The, and they kind of babysit the horses. They're just the horse's best friend. And that was their real function back in those days. Uh, so now the reason they became especially associated with a fire service has to do with early prints and lithography. Um, lithography was one of the first ways that just sort of ordinary people, as opposed to rich people, could have art in their homes, okay. uh, these early prints. And one of the really popular subjects was a steamer, a fire steamer racing through the streets of the city. And they would, the artists would often put in a few, um, you know, a few Dalmatians running alongside. It's a little exaggerated, really, how common they were. It's not like every fire station had one. But uh, that really kind of cemented them in the public mind and in firefighters' minds as sort of their dog. And so even after they didn't need horses in the fire station anymore, the Dalmatian they still thought of as kind of, you know, that's the firefighter's dog. Now, in reality, of course, all kinds of animals have been used as, as mascots right. in the fire service. There's, you know, in... Smokey the Bear. Well, that's a, he, he's a favorite. We got him back here. I can show you. I can introduce you to him if you want. He hangs out in our wildland gallery. But, you know, there's, uh, you know... I mean, you can imagine parrots and right. bees and boa constrictors and everything else have been in, in uh, and you know, in, here in Phoenix, for instance, the first uh, mascot of the Phoenix Fire Department was a goat, Homer the Goat, just a stray goat that wandered in and they took him in. Eventually, they banished him out to a farm in Glendale because he was busting into the neighbor's vegetable gardens too much. Well, that's different um, than what I thought. I thought he was probably on every single one of their vehicles oh, and they yeah. couldn't keep him off. Nah, I mean, you know, that may have <clears> Not, not that that's true about yeah. goats or anything, but I do have hoof prints <laughs> yeah. on top of my car. Well, there you go. Yeah. Well, yeah, and there are people who now do yoga with goats running around on, on their backs, right? So, right. Uh, and uh, then there, the later, there was also a, a station downtown that had a coyote, Rex the Coyote. Okay. Uh, so, you know, uh, anything you can imagine. Now, usually now, insurance won't let you keep an animal in a fire station so at least for now the era of the of the firehouse mass so we've just been through clothes, but gallery one we've still got three more galleries to go through but we're coming into more of the mechanized fire trucks and some of that kind of stuff exactly. uh i think we're going to pick up the pace a little bit yeah. now uh that Gallery one is just so doggone interesting. Yeah, and, and, and the, as, as long-winded as I was in there, I promise you, we barely scratched the surface. But we're going to do, we are, like you said, we're going to kind of move it along from here. Well, we covered but, a lot of history in that right. part, too, you know, and, and so let's, let's get going. Well, when I do the tours, I have a tendency, like I said, to get bogged down out there. And it's because, partly just because I like it, but also, as you said... Uh, it's the part I think that people know the least about. Right. And so when we get in here, it's fire trucks, and everybody loves them, but I think people are more familiar with what they would see in here. What I'm standing in front of here is the oldest fire truck that we have that was built to be a fire truck. This one was built in England by a company called Merriweather, 
and it was built uh, for the city of Lima, Peru, the International Fire Department of Lima, Peru. And they really? had it in, yeah, they, how, how it ended up in Phoenix, I'm not really sure. But they had, they had it there in Lima from the uh, uh, 19-teens and the 1920s. And this is a ladder truck? <laughs> this is a ladder truck, that's exactly right. It's, this is what they called a braidwood body, because it's also a pumper. Uh, they have a nice old-school British pump that was designed by a fire chief in England called Braidwood. And uh, the chief didn't really do a lot of uh, accounting for the safety of his guys. As you can see, there's a, a big central box that, carried, that the guys would just sit on top of, and they have a brass bar in the middle to hold on to, but that's basically it. And uh, that was a dangerous thing, really. And then there is a ladder suspended up top, which you can pop off, and it's wheeled, and you can go up and get people. That's an escape ladder, as they call it. Okay. Uh, well, or the Brits actually call it a fire escape. It means so this, something different. So this ladder comes off with these wheels, and right. you can wheel it up to the side of a house. Or and the then, front, yeah. And go okay, right so, and so it doesn't stay on the truck yeah. like, like what you'd think of a ladder truck. Exactly. No, no, no. It's not an extension ladder in that way. You know, it's, and, and those didn't really come along until a little bit later. There were, I mean, there were, <laughs> there were some horse-drawn ones. Uh, but that had a spring-powered la ladder that you would send up. But this was a slightly different uh, example. Okay, now uh, there's something that I've seen on several of the pieces in there, and now I'm starting to see it here with the trucks also. On top of your pumps, you have a cylinder that, mm -hmm. uh, in this case, it's probably 10 inches round, right. about 2 foot tall, and... and it sits on top of the pump. Now, is that for equalization of the water? That's or? exactly what it's for. You got, that's an air chamber, and the you'll see it on the many, many of the hand pumpers. Too, right. Oh, pumpers. yeah. I saw, I saw, yeah. I've been seeing them everywhere I go. It was nice even with them, but that was, you know, a lot of these were repeating pumps, and so if you didn't have that, you would have almost a machine gun effect with the water being like, pop, 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 coming out of the hose. Okay. Uh, and... That is really hard on the pump. In fact, with a motorized pump, it would tear it up in a very short period of time. Um, so that would introduce that little bit of air pressure that would give you the, that nice, steady outflow of water. Make sense? Okay. Now, I think I've seen stuff like this maybe in houses with steam radiators and sure. stuff where they have a, a cylinder. Nothing nearly this size. Right. But I was wondering if that's what that was well, for. We'll see, and you kind of see it through the. If you see there, there's a great big chrome ball that's on the front of over by the far wall there. Uh huh. Uh, that is uh, the front of one of our Aaron's Fox rigs, and Aaron's Fox wore that big chrome ball up front like a like a badge of honor. Okay. And they had a pump up front, and they were popular in places that had water fronts because you could wheel them down a pier or onto a riverbank and run your hose out into the water. Uh, but that big chrome ball was kind of their trademark. That was the thing that, that people loved about them. Okay. Now, if you step over here, but yes, that kind of coppery one on the on this uh, on the on the Merryweather from Lima is a little different formation of it, but it's the same sort of yeah, same yeah. The, the, lots of different formations. Wow! Look at the light on this thing. That's a spotlight. I'm assuming. <laughs> yeah. This. Well, you know, we take a lot of care to have this one well presented because this fire truck. I mean, we got some rare fire trucks here at the museum. This is a really common fire truck. This is the kind of truck you would have seen all over America, other parts of the world as well, in the 1920s, 30s, 40s, into the 1950s. This one was in Oshkosh, Wisconsin. Uh, you know, as you guessed, we got a lot of pieces from Wisconsin and from the upper Midwest in general. That's because the museum started in Lake Geneva, Wisconsin. Oh, okay. And, but this, um, it was there for a while, but this was the first truck in the 
museum, and this is a classic American fire truck. It's an American LaFrance. An American LaFrance, I mean, there were, you know, lots of automotive companies made fire trucks. Ford made fire trucks, Chevy and Dodge, uh, Mack out of Allentown, PA made fire trucks. Uh, we have a bunch of them here. Uh, Stutz, the Bearcat people, made that fire truck right down the aisle there in the 1920s. Okay. They were better known for, you know, the Stutz Bearcat and right. luxury cars and race cars, but they did also make some fire trucks. Um, but it, there were also some, some companies that specialized in fire trucks. Aaron's Fox, Seagrave, a few others. Probably the most famous of those was American LaFrance, then out of Elmira, New York. And they, they also made city buses, but their real specialty was fire trucks. And they only went into Chapter 11, you know, 10, 12 years ago. Oh, I was, I was going to say they're still making yeah. the fire trucks, aren't they, they? they? They may still be doing some I stuff. Don't I don't know. But, they, you know, Phoenix had American LaFrance as well into the 21st century. Um, they made this truck in 1924 for Oshkosh. It was with them for a long career, 31 years, 1955 is when uh, they retired it, and it was bought by, and you'll see there's a placard here with a picture. This nice lady sitting in the front of the truck was Olive Getz, and she bought it as a gift for her husband, George Getz. Wow. And uh, he had just said casually one day while they were driving along in the 50s there, he noticed this truck sitting in front of a car dealership, said, oh, it'd be fun to have one of those. So she sent her son, Bert, back to purchase this truck, and it uh, was he it was really basically intended kind of as a gag gift, basically. Somehow kept it a secret from him, gave it to him on Christmas of 1955. Wow. And he loved it. He went nuts, and he gave his kids and neighborhood kids rides in it. But he also developed, I guess the kind word would be, an interest in fire trucks, and he started to accumulate more and more of them. And really in a very short time, 1961, he had enough to start a small museum in Kenosha, Wisconsin. They lived in Lake Geneva. Okay. And this truck became a reserve vehicle for the Lake Geneva Fire Department. Uh, but uh, they eventually, uh, you know, he started to collect more and more stuff, and he had enough to start a museum. And so that's how the, and some crony of his said, I should call it the Hall of Flame. And so he, he did. So I always say we're one of the few museums that, has a pun for a name. Yeah, and, and how did it end up here in Phoenix? Uh, well, because the family moved out here, oh. and they brought the collection with them. <laughs> okay. <coughs> Excuse me. So we're going to head this way. I think you talk too much. That's yeah, the reason think, you're coughing. I think that's the problem. It's starting to, starting to get to me a little. But I'm enjoying yeah. the heck out of this talking too Well, much. I really appreciate that. <laughs> I really I do appreciate that. This is, this is so danged informative. My wife and daughter don't always appreciate it. So. <laughs> um, now, this is... Beautiful. Uh, yeah, this is probably... You know, most people would say that this is maybe the most beautiful of our trucks. And uh, it's, I would tend to agree. Uh, what we're talking about is a great big uh, 30s era fire truck uh, that is painted white, and it says NFD across the, the hood. Uh, and this is an American LaFrance 400 series from Johnny Carson's hometown of Norfolk, Nebraska. And it has, and it's, the hood is raised so you can see it, it has a V12 engine, and behind that, the pump for the water. So it's got a lot of weight up front, but even so... This could do about 60 miles an hour, uh, which the little kids never seem to find that all that impressive, but for a 1935 and a vehicle this big, that was pretty good. And the pump 
could deliver uh, well over 1,200 gallons of water a minute. So wow. you, had, you could get to a fire pretty fast, and you had a lot of options for fighting it when you got there. And never to be underestimated with firefighters, Oh, and this truck is uh, this truck is just awesome looking. It is white, like he said. It's got the hose uh, connections hanging out the side. It's got ladders that are just beautiful hanging off the side. The scroll work with the uh, pen striping is just unbelievable. The dash and the is is all chromed or or uh, nickel plated or whatever. And this engine is really kind of baffling to me uh he said it's a v12 so I was but told. yet it's got it looks like it's got two spark plugs per cylinder okay and if you count them you got two well you got one two three four five six yeah so that'd be 12 but I'm wondering why the two spark plugs per cylinder I know that that's common in in airplanes I don't know but you're talking to the wrong guy. That's not my wheel. This is just. I, I, I'm yeah. into. I like vehicles, yeah, and, sure. and of course, I'm looking at this engine, just like wow. Yeah. Well, this. I mean, you know, if you get the old timers in here, they'll tell you this is maybe the finest fire truck ever made. It's like the Rolls Royce of fire trucks. It looks like the yeah. Rolls Royce of fire well, trucks. Well, and, and that front end is built to look like a Rolls or a, a you know a Packard or a Bentley or you know one of those uh, the Duesenberg, one of those old school yes. cars. Um, it is just beautiful. But it was now, also very, very effective. Now, but, but the thing was, it was too expensive. It was the middle of the Great Depression. This cost about $13,000. Might as well have been $13 million for all the more most towns could afford it. So LaFrance couldn't move these. And so they, they made them. Uh, they didn't make all that many of them. They made fewer than 200. Wow. Uh, the one over there that says Burlington, that's the same truck from 1938. The only difference is they put doors on that one, and it's red. Uh, but it was, you know, it, I've, I've often wondered over the years if, you know, who the uh, salesman was who managed to sell small Midwestern farming towns these trucks in the middle of the Depression. But it's a, it, it's a beautiful truck and one of our favorites. Very beautiful. And what's the deal with this truck right here? This is interesting. Well, this is a very important piece. This is kind of the missing link in the evolution of the fire truck. This, um, you know... When you talk about the Industrial Revolution, people were leaving the rural areas. They were going to the urban areas. Urban areas are getting bigger. Cities are getting bigger, but they're also getting taller. Okay. And what that meant in firefighting was that they were having really nasty, deadly fires in high places. Places like, uh, you know, tenement fires, factory fires, theater fires, that sort of thing. And this was a response to that, because what they discovered was that it's just hard to get water to go up. Water to right. go up. So this is what they call a water tower, and it's got a big kind of crane-like dinosaur neck-looking thing sticking out uh, there over the door to Gallery 2. And you'll see at this end, there is a crank, a big crank, <coughs> and one guy with arms like Popeye and a waist like a supermodel would crank this thing and it would go up there and then the would cable would the cable would pull it up like like a crane exactly and then you could attach you could attach it just to a, a hydrant or you could attach it to a pumper even better and it would pump water up to a, a high floor, floor of a building or onto the roof or whatever you also have these deluge cannons which you can direct even more precisely now this big god-awful thing was built in 1897 to be pulled by a team of four horses. 
And then a really? few years later, 1909, they gave the horses a break, and they attached that tractor to it. And as you can see, it's gasoline-powered. The gas tank is right behind the guy's seat. I don't know how OSHA there's, would go for that. Yeah, there's now. about 10 gallons is what it right. would hold. And this would go chugging through the streets of Toledo, Ohio, at about 10 miles an hour. So you hope the building burned nice and slow. But this is uh, kind of how fire trucks began. It's really how trucks of any kind began. Is instead of hooking a horse up to something, you'd hook a, a tractor up to it, and you kind of have a truck. Actually, another example of that, if you step over this way. Now, this thing's a really interesting-looking piece. I mean, you've got, you've got this crane apparatus out the right. back with the fire hose. You've got two other uh, hose setups that are just water cannons. This thing is, is probably 30 foot long. It's got this crane on it that extends another 15 feet beyond the back. So mm -hmm. I'm assuming that it'd reach up to shoot water third story of at a least, building. At least, yeah. And, and if you angled it up, you could probably get up quite a bit higher. The exactly. wheels on this thing, the back wheels are probably five foot tall, but the front are, and they're solid wheels. They're rubber, but they're solid. And the front are about three foot in diameter, but uh, man, this thing's just a cool looking. Like it you is. said, it, it looks kind of like a dinosaur. It but, does, yeah. Kind of uh, got that look. And, but you know, here we have a Mack truck, right? And okay. everybody knows the famous Mack Bulldog. Right. This one is from 1948 uh, from Pier, South Dakota, and it's got the Mack Bulldog. But right across the aisle, this is, oh. a, this is a Mack that shows you where the Bulldog came from. This is a 100-year-old, 101-year-old fire truck. This was built in 1919, and it was built as an army truck, a U.S. Army truck. And in World War I, British soldiers started referring to that blunt front end of the Mack uh, truck as a bulldog. As they started calling the trucks the bulldog, so Mack okay. picked up on that and adopted it. But this particular truck was an army truck. It was bought later in the early 1920s as army surplus by the city of Baltimore, Maryland, and they did that same thing of a, of a conversion. They, in their own shops, turned it into a fire truck. They hooked up those big ladder wagons, which had been horse-drawn ladder wagons. Right. They also hooked up those uh, chemical tanks. Now, you can't see them as well from this side. Those big copper chemical tanks, right. like we were talking like about. Like what we talked about in Gallery right. 1. They had an attack for those, and they had this life net. Which is the thing you always see in the movies. I have the, never seen one of these in real life. The, the well, canvas, the canvas life net that has a big hoop with twenty mm -hmm. guys around it, so you could jump out right. of the third story building and, <laughs> and, and that hopefully, was the theory, but it didn't always work. That was the problem. I'll bet that some people didn't make it. People missed, and that was really bad. Also, sometimes it hit the firefighters, and that was really bad. Also, the firefighters were supposed to hold it with their hands pronated, and you know, uh, their knees bent a little so they could absorb that impact. You know, it's a lot of oh, yeah. body falling from a height like that. Well, sometimes they'd forget. They'd hold the palms up. They'd have, they'd lock their knees. you get broken knees, broken wrists, whatever. So it was, um, they weren't the greatest. And most places actually outlawed them by the 20s or 30s. But some places were using them up till the 60s. You see them in the movies all the time. They're a real iconic part of right. fighting more. But they don't really... Uh, you know, they weren't really the greatest thing. And you, you kind of want... And these things aren't that... I mean, they're not that big around. They're probably, what, 10-foot circumference? Right, and it's hard to know where you're going to land when you jump out of a building, you you know. And so, you basically, you want to wait for them to get a, a nice ladder up. Well, I always just thought it was a canvas attached to the rail. But what yeah. I'm seeing here is that you have springs. You have springs, so it gives you a little It has a little bit more of a... Yeah, mm -hmm. okay. So, that would take some yeah. of the shock out, but still, you got... I, 
10 or 12 guys standing yeah. around that thing and 100, 150 pounds coming out of a, exactly. a third-story building. That yeah. thing's going to hit hard. No, exactly. You know, from two stories up, maybe three, you could use this. Any higher than that, it wasn't the greatest. You, you wanted to wait for somebody to get a ladder to you. And you'll find that even to this day, really tall buildings aren't firefighters' favorite things. Well, and something else that's interesting about this Mack truck yes. is that these old Macs were chain-driven. Yes. They did not have a driveline, uh, so to speak. They, they were, came back to a gearbox, and they chain-drove the back almost, wheels. Looks almost like a bike chain. My uh, father, God rest him, was a, was a truck driver, and he, uh, <coughs> his, remember CB handles? Back right, in the oh 70s? yeah. Yeah, his CB handle was chain drive, because that's how far back he went in the truck. Oh, wow. So I, yeah, he would well recognize uh, a chain like this. A lot of those old Mack trucks, you know, the old semis and stuff, exactly. were all chain driven. and. Well, and the one from Lima, that's also, it's got a Oh, chain. is it? That's okay. Chain driven as well, yeah. Okay, now you got this this fire engine that uh, is set up for the kids or, or for right. taking pictures or whatever. That's yep. free to crawl on, climb on. This is a 1951. Yeah, it's a 1951 American LaFrance. It's the youngest truck that we have in this gallery, and it's from Miami, Arizona. They donated it to us, and it's we don't have a white chain around it. Excuse me. <clears throat> We don't have a weight chain around it. It's for anyone who wants to, but especially kids, to climb on and play on and stuff. And as a result of that, we don't take as much care with its finish and its paint job and everything. But as a result of that, it's probably the most beloved truck that we have in the museum. Now, of course, in the current circumstances, we have to come back and wipe it down with, uh, you know, uh, disinfectant right. and everything a couple times a day. And we do that, but it's, uh, you know, it's a big favorite with our visitors. Yeah, and it's, it, it just goes to show, like we were talking in the very beginning, how you guys are geared for the kids to come here and see, and and any kid that any any young man, and and I'm sure a lot of girls, more and more uh, girls, you know, it's it's one of those things that it's just uh, it, it's an awesome display for the kids. Well, we have some really uh, you know some marvelous stuff for kids, but uh, I also really I always try to emphasize it's a great uh, museum for kids. It's a great museum for adults. Maybe not always at the same time. If you're in here with a bunch of kids, it may be hard to really get the full historical experience. Uh, and, you know, you come in by yourself. If you're, you know, if you have a kid and you're trying to do that, it's kind of boring for them, maybe. So it's it, it's a great museum for both demographics. Oh, definitely. And and if you're a firefighter and you're missing this museum, I mean, this to me, if you were a firefighter, would be worth the plane ride to Phoenix just we to come see. We get from all over the world. Part of our problem, Lauren, is that we're not as well known locally as we'd like to be. We get firefighters, history buffs, motorheads, people like that who come in uh, from Belgium and, you know, South Korea and New Zealand and anywhere, you know, South Africa, anywhere you can imagine. But locally, we get people all the time who are like, you know, gee, I lived here 20 years. I never knew this was here. And so uh, that's kind of an ongoing problem for us. But, yeah, firefighters and history buffs and people who are interested in motor vehicles, that's a big part of what we do here. Now, we're standing in front of right now. Another part of our function here is memorializing firefighters. We have a memorial here to the 9-11 firefighters. Uh, this is a big model of a painted pony 
that is intended as a tribute uh, to the FDNY, but also to the officers of the NYPD and the New York and New Jersey Port Authority that died in 9-11. And uh, we got a lot of other side displays connected to that. Over there in the bricks on the floor, we have a memorial to the Granite Mountain hotshots, the 19 young guys who died in the Yarnell Hill fire uh, just about seven years ago here in Arizona. Uh, and then on the walls, we have firefighters who either died in the line of duty or in some cases didn't die, but who did something heroic and were decorated for bravery or recognized in some way for bravery. So if you have time ever to look around at some of these uh, story, individual stories, it's real lump-in-the-throat stuff. Uh, wow. And it, you know, I mean, sometimes firefighting can be a dangerous job, and sometimes firefighters get hurt, and sometimes they get killed. And we just think, you know, it's important for us to acknowledge uh, that heroism and that dedication, and that's what this this is one of the more solemn parts of the museum. But we are very proud of it. Yes. So now I want us to head is uh, go all the way to the back two galleries. Okay. Gallery three and gallery four. Uh, gallery. And you've got you know just just as a heads up for people, we've got uh, what thirty five, forty five, something like that uh, engines a, in here. We have between ninety and a hundred large wheeled pieces on the floor at any given time. And so it's a lot to look at. And we have about another third of the museum of the collection is in our warehouse. And we kind of rotate through. So it may not be the same set of displays when you all come through as, uh, as when uh, we're here today. But we always have something cool to look at. The, and that, and that uh, warehouse that you're talking about is pretty dang cool. I had the opportunity uh, a few years back. I was here uh, looking for handles on the hand-pulled carts because a friend of mine is restoring one and I got pulled down there to the warehouse and it is a whole another museum it really is and that's that that uh, we you know a lot of times we wish that we could put more of this stuff up here but when I was first working here uh, about a decade and a half ago um, that had not been built yet and the museum in those days Honestly, it was more like a garage than a museum. The, the collection, the trucks were stacked, so you could usually only really look at one side of them. And so it really has freed up a lot of floor space and made the presentation a lot better. But the price we pay for that is that we can't put everything on the floor that we would like to. Now, if you had a dedicated firefighter that was wanting to see the lower warehouse, is there yeah. an extra fee they can pay to go see that? They, or? We don't make them pay an extra fee, but we do. Uh, the only reason that it wouldn't happen is if nobody was available at a given time to take them down there. If there's anybody around, and there usually is, who, if they ask, and, you know, in some cases they're asking about a specific piece that's in right. storage. Right, which was here. my case. Right. And, uh, we'll yeah, we'll take them down and show them around. Cool. <laughs> It's not a public area, and, you know, it's a little cluttered and everything. Well, yeah, it's not presented anything right. like this. Exactly. It's, it's a warehouse, exactly right. like what you said. And a but workshop I, also. Yeah. I've kind of found, uh, you know, just as a side note, uh, I went to the Hershey, Pennsylvania mm -hmm. car, uh, uh, car Museum. I see. And it was a nice museum up on top, but I was looking for something specific, and they said, oh, we've got one of those down in the, in the basement. Mm -hmm. And I says, well, what, what do I have to do to see it? They said, well, an extra 10 bucks will get you oh. down there. And I says, well, here's my 10 bucks. I walked into that, and I was 
dumbfounded by what was down there. I mean, it was just unbelievable. The the cars that they had down there was probably twice as many as what they had on display up on top. Again, parked really tight together. But for ten bucks, I saw three times the museum. Oh, it was just it was it was fantastic. Well, so now we're in Gallery Three, and these some of these are the trucks that we take out in parades and public events. My daughter and I got to ride on top of one of these in the Fiesta Bowl parade one year. Well, that's cool. standing right in front of uh, our, our Van Pelt, a 1957 Van Pelt uh, from Mesa, Arizona. It uh, kind of came back to us after being in various other places, including Monterey, California, for a number of years. But I just think that that front end is particularly beautiful. I really like this truck very much. But the other, we have a couple of other special things here. One of them is we have an old-school call box. Uh, a uh, you know an alarm box right uh, this one was in Glendale California and it was made by a company called Gamewell this one was a little later than most of them it was, this one was from the 1920s but if you're in Glendale and you uh, you know see a building on fire you run over here and as long as they've remembered to wind it up uh, which they didn't they didn't so, yeah yeah this uh, is this is like a parking meter it's, yeah. it stands about six foot tall and it has a pull handle that when you pull it down, there's a button on the inside, mm-hmm. and you can push the button. And then it just sounded a... It would sound, a, a, it would sound a, a, a code of one, one, two, three, one, one, two, three. And that way the guy at the dispatch center would know to dispatch trucks. Okay, so these were wired yeah. into into a dispatch exactly. center. Exactly. Okay, because you've got your dispatch center set up here. Right. Now, if you step over here, you'll notice a truck that responded to 9-11. So again, this oh, is one really? of the somber things. Yeah, this is a this is Rescue 4 uh, from uh, Manhattan. From It was from uh, the... Um, I'm blanking for a second, I'm sorry. Uh, from Queens. Okay. And it responded to 9-11. Now, rescue trucks were a very prestigious order of, uh, you know, fire stations in New York. The rescue guys, they, you wouldn't find any pumpers or water or anything like that on this, or ladders or anything. What you would find in there would be things like jackhammers and hearse tools and, uh, you know, construct. This was for a major... For rescue. This, yeah, this was for like a building collapse, a bridge collapse, something like that, an airplane crash. That is uh, what these were built to respond to. The whole crew on this, sadly, was lost. Uh, the crew also of Rescue uh, 3 from Harlem in the Bronx was also lost that morning. And so we it's been turned uh, by some restorers from Chicago, turned this into more of a kind of a memorial vehicle. And so this doesn't really look like it would have looked going down the street in New York. Um, this is the second youngest truck that we have in the collection. It's from 1997, and uh, we are very proud to display it. Now, and this is a huge truck. I mean, this thing's this thing's forty-five foot, fifty foot long. It's, exactly. It's huge, and and they've done a very nice job of the of the uh, commemoration or right. whatever. They've got in memory of the crew members uh, sticker on the side. They've got a rescue from the Bronx, Harlem, Big Blue. Yeah, that's Rescue Three. <clears> that's Rescue Three. Was, yeah, this door right. was put on because it needed a door and also to memorialize. Uh, the crew from Rescue Three, and uh, then it's on got the other side. You'd see that one with Popeye. That logo with Popeye. Okay. Uh, that was Rescue Four's logo. Okay. It's just a you know it's a it's a big truck. This yeah, thing's huge. It's very big, and you know and it, was for, it was for handling big responses. Now, if you step down here into Gallery Four, 
you will see uh, the next, the actually youngest truck or vehicle that we have in our collection. And it's for a very sad reason that it's here. Uh, this is a <coughs> transport buggy, a Ford uh, F750 transport buggy. And this is one of the two vehicles that carried the Granite Mountain Hot Shots, the 1950s, oh. who died uh, in the Yarnell Hill fire up near, uh, just a little south of Prescott, Arizona, uh, just about seven years ago. And this one uh, was one of two vehicles. They, at the city of Prescott abandoned the uh, that company, the Granite Mountain Hot Shots. It was decided to just end that program. Only one of the 20-man crew survived. The other 19 died, and there were two of these. They made a movie about this. They did indeed, and, and they used this vehicle and the other vehicle. <coughs> I'm sorry, in no. that movie. Uh, but they um, they did uh, uh, put them in storage, and they were going to sell them. Well, the guy who's the vice president of the firefighters firefighting museum in Los Angeles, the County Fire Museum of Los Angeles. One of his kids was one of the guys who died, and he didn't want to see these just sold as surplus city property. He got an anonymous donor in uh, the L.A. area to donate uh, $25,000. It was the only bid that was made for both vehicles. They were both bought. We have uh, 7A. The guy's son rode on 7B, so that's over. Uh, that one's over in Los Angeles. So this is one of the few that we don't own. Uh, we're just kind of hosting this one. And we'll probably have it for many years, but if they ever got a museum or some kind of facility up in uh, Prescott that could accommodate this, we would send it back to them. Wow. Now, uh, if you step over here, <coughs> you mentioned one of our favorite people here a little while ago, and I wanted to make sure you got a chance to, to see him. So our friend Smokey the Bear, this is at the entrance to our Wildland Gallery. And, you know, Smokey, this is actually a, a fire, a, a Smokey suit that right. they would, some poor probie from the Forest Service would have to wear. In Preferably on a 114 degree day exactly. in, in Phoenix, yeah. yes. So you can't do it for much more than, you know, five minutes tops. Uh, but, you know, Smokey, what a lot of people don't know, you may know this, is that Smokey was a real bear. He was, you know, he didn't really wear jeans and a right. ranger's cap, but he was a... He was a uh, little black bear, actually. They picture him as kind of like a grizzly or something like that, but he was, uh, he was a little black bear that, sad to say, lost his mom in a fire in New Mexico called the Capitan Gap Fire. That was close to Lincoln, New Mexico, correct? That's probably right. I don't know that area that well. They do have a museum over there we should probably check out. I, I'm planning on it this fall, probably. I am hoping to go over there also sometime. Uh, but it was... Um, he was... <clears throat> he lost his mom in this fire uh, and got pretty badly hurt in that fire, but the park rangers rescued him, and they took him to the vet, and the vet, he was just a tiny little guy, but the vet patched him up, and he got better, and he was very cute, but he was a bear, and he was getting bigger, they couldn't keep him, and they couldn't uh, turn him loose. He wouldn't have been able to take care of himself out in the forest. So they talked to National Zoo in Washington, D.C., into taking him on, and he became a permanent guest there. And I always try to impress the kids, again, they never are, uh, that when I was a little kid in the late 60s, I went with my family to the National Zoo in D.C., 
and I saw the real Smokey. It's a very vivid really? memory for me. I did. No, I'm he impressed. Was, yeah, well, I'm, I'm glad somebody. <laughs> yeah, he was. Uh, he was very old. He, you know, went to Bear Heaven just a few years later, and they brought him back to Capitan and buried him there. He has a grave there. Really? Uh, yeah, but he was, uh, you know, candidly, he looked kind of scraggly and scroungy. Um, but it's a very vivid memory for me that I can remember. It made a big impression on me that he, you could still, as old a guy as he was, you could still see the burns on his, uh, kind of his front legs and his chest and his face from where he'd been burned all those years earlier as a little guy. But I always like to tell the kids that story because it's a great reminder that when you go out into the forest or the desert, all this beautiful wilderness we have in this country, that's somebody's home too. There's a lot oh, of wonderful yeah. plant and animal life out there, and it really messes up their life. Most of them aren't as lucky as Smokey. You know, it really messes up their life if they have a fire. But also, the men and women who do that work, the smoke jumpers and the hot shots, it's really hard and really dangerous work. And we really owe those people a great debt of gratitude. But also, we want to keep them as much out of harm's way as we can. And that's kind of what this uh, gallery is devoted to. It's It's devoted to wildland firefighting. One of my favorite trucks we're standing in front of now, big, beautiful uh, Moreland pumper built in 1930 in Burbank, California, uh, for the Los Angeles County uh, Forestry Department. This served the Topanga Canyon area in L.A. Uh, when it was a lot more remote than it is now. And it was a, a, a pumper that was built, a pumper G that was built to serve that area. Uh, and it could do pump and roll. It could pump about 600 gallons of water that it carried. Uh, but it's big job was it was a brush truck for fighting uh, wildfires. The one in the middle there is from the Chattanooga, Tennessee area, served Lookout Mountain, uh, which overlooks Chattanooga and served brush fires and so forth there. We have a display of models of firefighting aviation. Now, see, now, where where we live is Mm -hmm. where Hawkins and Powers is from. I don't know if you've heard of Hawkins and Powers or not. Not off the top of my head. They they had aerial firefighting uh, planes, and in fact, they, they ended up going out of business because two of their planes, due to a fault in the C-130s, ended up crashing within a year. They lost a wing. I don't know if you remember that happening here probably 20 years ago. Right. So that, that drove them out of business. But they have a firefighting museum there in Grable that, that still has several of their planes. Uh, it's an aerial firefighter. Yeah. Well, this is museum. the thing. These models, the uh, Arizona Modeling Club or the Phoenix Modeling Club, did this display for us. It's fantastic. Um, one of the things I, one of the few things I envy the Phoenix Police Museum is that they have a police helicopter in there. Right. You know, a police helicopter is smaller than a firefighting a firefighting aircraft, so they can fit it in there. It's very cool. Uh, and that's a, another museum, if you're here in Phoenix, that I recommend you checking out is the uh, is the police museum. I did go check out the police museum, but it's closed right now because due to the, the COVID. Yeah, and, and, you know, the, I really wanted to cover that while I was here. I'm going to be back down here. My daughter lives down here. Right. Uh, the whole Miranda rights yes, thing a, all happened right exactly. here in There's Phoenix. An excellent display of artifacts <clears throat> in the Miranda case. Yes. Uh, so that's another cool part of that museum. And there is uh, Phoenix part of the Phoenix jail. They found that in a lot of places that had adobe buildings that they weren't very good as jails. Right. The guy could just pick his way out overnight. And so what they eventually did is kind of instead of putting you inside the jail, they put the jail outside of you. They just chain you to a big old rock. And they've got that rock with a chain on it. That was like basically the, wow. the original Phoenix jail. Uh, I also was standing in front of a um, 
smoke jumper's uniform. That's a very early smoke jumper's uniform from Missoula, Montana, and uh, that's they have a fire uh, wildland firefighting museum up there. They also have the training, the, right. the fire ju smoke jumpers uh, exactly. training center up there. And that's that's a specimen of that early. Wow. Year. So anyway, uh, this is where I'm going to leave you. You're welcome to wander around and uh, chat a bit more about the uh, the exhibits here. But I really have enjoyed getting to spend some time with you, Lauren, and, and uh, come back anytime. Hey, Mark, I really appreciate the time that you've spent with us, and and the information that you have is just phenomenal. And like you said, I'm sure we just scratched the surface. We really did. So you can come back for round two sometime. If you I, I might have to do that. All right. But the cost to get into the museum is like ten bucks a piece. Ten bucks for adults, eight for seniors, sixty-two and older, eight for kids six to seventeen. I believe it's four dollars for kids three to five, and for kids younger than three. It's free, baby. Well, that's cool. So it's reasonable to come here. There's right. more than enough to see. Mm -hmm. You can easily, well, we've easily spent two hours right. talking here. And we didn't and we, and yeah, so it's a place this person could spend some time. It's not hard to get to. you got a nice parking lot. Right. And uh, this is just an awesome museum. Lots to see. Uh, wonderful people here. We were greeted very nicely. Uh and you've got your YouTube channel at Hall of Flame yeah, that has yeah. all of these different videos. You can also see most of those videos on our website, which is halloflame.org. Halloflame.org. Yes. I was going to ask you about your website. So you can go there. They've got a great website. Uh, that's how I contacted Mark here was through the website. And we really appreciate if people subscribe to our uh, YouTube channel. We really would like to get that subscriber count up. Definitely, and that's that's you know it's it's a great thing. Uh, do subscribe. Uh, I did the other day. Thank you, sir. When I when I signed up or or when I went to it and I looked and I'm going, I need to spend more time on this channel, uh, just for the for the education and well, then stop back in often because we're always trying to add new stuff. So. Well, that would be great. Mm -hmm. Well, again, I really appreciate your time, and like I say, the world is full of wonders. You need to get out and explore. That has been my experience, Lauren. And everybody, have an absolutely wonder-filled day. All the rolling go, where am I to go? Meet Johnny, where am I to go? For I'm a young and a sailor lad, and where am I to go?